present for everyone doing their Christmas shopping this year. It's big. It's exciting. But once you get into it, you won't be disappointed because there's something in it for everyone. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 43 of... Round the Archives. Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! It's our legendary festive double issue, isn't it? Yes, it's a big one. It is a big slab, isn't it? So we better get on with it. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a selection box though, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I I said on on Twitter, if you've got an evening where you think there's nothing good on telly, just Mm -hmm. stick us on for however long this turns out to be. We're not quite sure at the moment. Yeah, You don't have to listen to it in one go. No, 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 we advise you don't. (laughs) But um, if you want to, then, you know, the option is there. Let's get on with it then. Mm -hmm. First up, Martin Holmes joins us to talk about Christmas TV in Mm -hmm. general. And then Warren will join us for a look at... The Good Life. Given the the time of year it is, I thought I might share with you, as I am prone to do, my thoughts and memories on on Christmas television and uh, growing up watching Christmas television as as a, as a child in the in the nineteen seventies. Now, Christmas is traditionally, or at least it used to be, the time of the year when the television companies put out their real big guns. They they, they get their ratings for the year, and there were so many programs that were made back then that were that when you think about it the Morecambe and Wise show um some mothers do have them Mike Yarwood on the BBC these were the massive programs these are the programs that still are up there in the in the in the highest ever rated uh, series that there's ever been and it's kind of bizarre really I mean you, know, you kind of think to yourself why why Christmas and of course the reason why Christmas is because people sit down together as families and watch television this is what they do they 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 gather together unless you're in my house now when i was a kid we used to uh, we used to go when i was very young we used to spend christmas with my grandparents and my grandparents were not big television fans they had a television they uh, just didn't particularly enjoy watching television they they certainly didn't think you should have television on on christmas day which is what everybody else was sat watching top of the pops or um you know the top of the pops christmas special was a big thing uh, at school but with my uh, my grandparents never saw it never saw it that, i can't even remember although i think they must have done they must have switched on the queen but uh at three o'clock but uh, i don't think we actually watched much in the way of of television as a family now in later years, we used to go to their house, but we would come home in the evening. And one of my key memories is actually watching the Morecambe and Wise show all together as a family. It must be that year, which was it 77, 78, which was the biggest ever Morecambe and Wise episode ever because we all said, and it was hilarious. We actually, I remember literally sitting there with my, you know, tears 
pouring from my eyes, not because I was unhappy, but tears of joy watching this programme. And yet that's the only actual television memory I have of watching television with my parents at Christmas. Now, the interesting thing about that time is that for a few years, around about the time I was about nine, ten years old, I used to get sent uh, for the first part of the Christmas holidays to stay with my godparents. Again, all sounds very suspect and dubious, but that's what we did. And I went and stay over in uh, with their their sons for a few days, uh, kicked out of the way and what have you. And the thing I most remember about that kind of era is the fact that we watched morning television and morning television uh, when I was staying with them was basically <laughs> brilliant things like Flash Gordon and in later years Flash the other Flash Gordon serials but those 1930s Flash Gordon serials were on at Christmas time so you would and and the book Rogers one that was the other thing so where you've got Killer Kane in the other series but you got Flash Gordon Flash Gordon's trip to Mars and Flash Gordon conquers the universe and the Buck Rogers series, all of which had a Larry Buster Crab in, and were all astonishing. And we used to get really, really enthusiastic about about this. This was kind of like it's a serial thing, and of course you were getting starting to get really worried about missing one. And then, of course, the other thing that was on about the same time, because hey, space and kids, and oh, it's Christmas, was holiday Star Trek. Now, this was Star Trek. This was the original Star Trek, and it was basically dressed up as holiday Star Trek, which either means that they cut all the horrible bits out of it for the kids in the morning, or they just called it that because they didn't want to show uh, the entire run of the series, so there were some best episodes and things like that. So we got quite addicted to Star Trek in the morning. At that age, influence and all that kind of thing probably explains a great deal. Anyway, that was part of the Christmas holidays. I mean, you had all the other things in the summer, Robinson Crusoe, blah, blah, blah. But Christmas meant those serials and holiday Star Trek. Now, I'm not even sure where they did it more than one year, but it, it's so embedded in my memory. In later years, of course, there were strange and different Christmases that you sometimes get to have. So I uh, spent two Christmases in a flat in Manchester living on my own and spent the entire time on my own because my, my family were at the other end of the country and I was working till Christmas Eve and didn't get down there and all this kind of thing blah 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 all terribly sad but the point is that i cooked my own dinner sat there on my own all day and again not a problem but one of the best things about one of those particular christmases was that arena rebroadcast the three-part orson wells interview all together on one day and that was a fabulous christmas morning it really was i, I sat there and I, I put off cooking because it was it was just so good and this is the other thing about christmas sometimes you get these incredible gems of television that you wouldn't otherwise get to see and they're brilliant they're absolutely brilliant so you know it's a special time of year televisually as well as everything else so th that's the beauty of it isn't it that's the beauty of television now the other thing about christmas is that over the years there have been so many what we would call classic christmas television episodes so i can't go through christmas for example, without seeing certain programmes. I think I talked about a couple of those on last year's Christmas Round the Archives, which was, of course, things like the uh, Too Many Christmas Trees episodes of The Avengers and the uh, Blue Carbuncle, which, again, for us in our house, Blue Carbuncle is part of Christmas. But then again, so are the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce films. They all have that midwinter, roaring fire feel about them. And there's something about Christmas television that has to have that 
kind of feel to it. It's very difficult to explain, really, in, in the broader sense. I mean, there's something really wrong about watching an episode of uh, an American series in June that's a Christmas episode. It's, it feels it feels wonky, it feels out of whack, you know. But yet, somehow, those Christmas episodes give you a sense of comfort. I think comfort is the word. I mean, last year, I mean, I hadn't actually watched it yet, but last year I recorded the Good Life Christmas special, the, the Christmas in a van, paper hats uh, made out of the, the Daily Telegraph uh, episode with Margot and all that. And it's, it's, it's brilliant, and it's part of Christmas, and yet, at the, at the, at other times of the year, it just doesn't feel quite like it gels properly but but so so that's one there are there are so many classic christmas episodes of so many series and they are slightly out of whack one of the best television christmas episodes i ever saw was on the west wing and again it's like everything suddenly has to stop because oh look it's christmas and this happens in a lot of series suddenly everything gets sort of put aside and oh no but it's christmas now and and suddenly uh, all our, our characters are acting in peculiar ways and getting quite schmaltzy and even the most uh, unpleasant characters suddenly start acting like they are the least screwed like person in the world i mean some people get very sentimental about christmas uh, in drama uh, you know and oh it's all got to be about family and you 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 kind of think that now they start showing Christmas films in the middle of November, early November now, on, on some of the uh, more obscure channels. And somehow that saccharine, that sense of, oh, it, that family whammily thing just doesn't quite gel at different times of the year. It, it feels wonky, and yet suddenly we all throw it all out with the thing, and here we are, it's Christmas, aren't we all great? Isn't it all lovely? And yeah... It probably is. I think we need some of that in the world, don't you? I think we actually need some kind of sense of decency, some kind of sense of this is the world as we would prefer it to be, with people being nice to each other and people being kind and people actually caring enough to make the effort for those people who most of the rest of the year they might cross the street and avoid. And, you know, it's a great thing to have those things. I mean, sometimes the plots of these Christmas movies are diabolical, but I can still shed a manly tear over over certain films. And, you know, let's face it, every year still I try and see at least one version. My personal favourite is the Patrick Stewart version of A Christmas Carol, which still moves me in incredibly, incredibly strange ways. But in the end, of course, we've got series like Doctor Who. I mean, was it 10, 11 years on the trot? was part of Christmas, it, for certainly in some families. Now, I met, I'm, I kept missing Doctor Who at Christmas because it, <laughs> the way my Christmas was set up was that I had to do a lot of driving. I had to deliver people to different houses. I had lunch with my mother, who I had to pick up. And then my partner had sort of lunch with her family and so on and so forth. And basically, the time that I was always driving home was more or less the time they uh, tended to put the Christmas special on, which is, you know, annoying for you as a Doctor Who fan, mostly because in the uh, world of online media, you don't really want to know what happens, even if the, the actual stories on the Christmas the Doctor Whos were never really that challenging. None of them were ever a sea devils, were they? None of them were ever a demons. They were all a quite nice tale that gets resolved in an hour, and everybody sort of gets to get a bit of snow and a Christmas pudding at the end, and now isn't the world wonderful again? And that's fine. That's fine. That's really the whole point of a Christmas episode. It has to be a capsule out of life 
which of course that's kind of what christmas is as well isn't it it's it's a bubble in your in your life that basically says this is a nice time the rest of the year can be utterly awful but for a day let's all try and be nice and that might mean that if even in in the most cynical unpleasant broadly alarming bits of telly but you know some of the series can be that's what we do and you know there's nothing wrong with that is there enjoy your telly that's what i try to do Muchness to you all, merry muchness. I've just been playing with my uh, Yuletide bull balls. How are you both? Merry Christmas, Warren. Merry Christmas, Do you Lisa. like our Christmas tree, Warren? I like your hemorrhoid tree, it's beautiful. <laughs> it has many balls. It does indeed. The Good Life, 26th of December 1977. Mm-hmm. Silly, but it's fun. Yes, it was fun. It was fun. Did you have a nice warm glow when you were yeah, watching? I yeah, did. Yeah. I think it's a really sort of happy storyline, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does. You know, I do remember seeing it a lot um, in my in my childhood. It is a stable Christmas treat, isn't it? A stable or a, a, or a staple? A, sta- a stable it, staple. You could watch it in the stable. Some more of the elderflower wine, please, matron. But let's quickly zoom through what happened. Um, title sequence, mm-hmm. and I said. We said, what's the bird at the start? Yeah, is it a dove or a duck or, or a goose? It's the most or... happiest goose in the world. It's a very happy bird. It's mugging at the camera shamelessly. Well, I, 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 yeah, I, I was debating that, wasn't it? I said, do you think how many takes they took of it? Don't look at the camera. Oh, it's looking at the camera. We'll just leave it in. And how many eggs does it lay as well? <laughs> it's either been frightened or it's um, egg bound. <laughs> but uh, Barbara's at home making out cut out decorations from hmm. newspaper isn't yeah. she she's trying to make robins because this is the 70s when everybody had hanging decorations and yeah. paper chains which people don't tend to do these days yeah. I, do you remember making them at school i, I don't remember Take making home. them but i do remember my dad my dad in you know in the 70s and 80s would decorate the, every inch of the ceiling with decorations and it would take him ages and it was referred to as Santa's Grotto. Wow. Do you remember like, the spinning top ones that you used to undo? Yes, yeah. you have to fluff them out. Yeah, yes. yeah we had yeah. those. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a very sort of 70s, 80s type thing, isn't it? But Tom has nicked some holly from the golf course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Warren, you're, you're a country sort, aren't you? Warren. If you'll pardon the expression. So they Did say. you ever go out hacking down a bit of holly or mistletoe from the you bush? used to go cutting down the mistletoe. All right. Where yeah. did you, you find that um, around your way? Just outside Cranbourne, on, yeah. on, there's um, Dead Man's Hill. Yeah. And the trees up in the top of Dead Man's Hill, called Dead Man's Hill because they used to hang the highwaymen there. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of highwaymen. get a lot of highwaymen up there. Um, used to go up um, that's when I first discovered I did like heights oh right <laughs> well, you went up and couldn't come down yes again. just that yeah um, I used to sit out there for ages okay did you ever go hack- hacking for foliage Lisa? no there wasn't uh, many holly trees around where I lived you, you just went went, 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 went to neighbours and nicked we, some no we just off the door we went, actually I don't think we ever had holly or mistletoe All right. but if we did it was probably bought from the greengrocers 
it was it was a treat to have holly and mistletoe we were lucky because it was growing naturally mm. but it was still a treat to have but, but did you have a real Christmas tree? Yes. Yeah. I bet you, Lisa. We had a real Christmas tree some years, and some years we had um, an artificial mm. one. Um, we, had, we had an artificial one when I was younger, and in a couple of years we had a real one. But the problem with real ones is when you've got cats, the needles go everywhere. Cats and dogs. Yeah. So. Did you get one with the estate? Yes. Yes, yeah. I got one from yeah. the estate yeah. as well. Yes, we yeah. got given a Christmas tree, and um, by about Boxing Day, it shed all its needles everywhere. <laughs> that was the real sign that Christmas was over. Then, when you had yeah. to get rid of your tree, yeah. we just had a big bonfire in the garden. That's it. Yeah, and it yeah. used to crackle away, yeah. and you were forever going barefoot in the sitting room and taking needles out the bottom of your feet. Well, I always think, you know, when it's nearly Christmas because the Christmas ads stop and the holiday ads start. Oh yes, come to your host season's holiday yeah. and all that. Yeah. But they've got they've got a homemade Yule log and Robin, haven't they? <laughs> it's Winky a Robin, massive Robin, which uh, later seems to make an appearance in one of the nineteen eighties BBC Christmas idents. Yes, because there's that infamous one of the Robin rotating round, isn't there? But Margot's got a crisis mm. next door. Hasn't she, she comes round because yes. she's got a problem with the tradesman. She isn't getting she isn't getting her length, is she? Yeah, <laughs> the, the tradesman's short by six inches, yeah, isn't he? He's, yeah. he's, six and a half inches. Yeah, six and a quarter. He's wantoned by six and a half inches because they have to measure the Christmas tree, and it's mm-hmm. eight eight foot five and three quarters <laughs> rather than the nine foot that Margot asked for. Can I, could you get a, no, I you know, could I get a nine foot tree yeah, in this I was room? Looking, I was looking at how the ceiling was. Surely it must go in the hallway then, up yes, the stairs. Yeah. Up a thing. Up a passage. Up a passage. Mm. It's Waterfield. But Margot is, is intent that she'll have the entire order correct or nothing at all. Mm. And that sets herself up for a fall, doesn't she? Mm. Do you think, instead of having an angel on the top of the tree, it would be her face on the angel <laughs> <laughs> on our Christmas decorations? Because we've got Matt Smith on our tree. We have got Matt yeah. Smith and a TARDIS. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's playing with, I like the fact he's pulling at his he's, bow tie. He's straightening his bow tie. Yeah. Yeah. But Jerry comes in and uh, is... He gets a gin and tonic, and yeah. I get the feeling he always has a gin and tonic it's when he a, comes out. Yeah, yeah, it's a very alcohol-related um, era, isn't it? Because mm. we said about Terry and June last year about yes. drinking, and there's an awful lot of just you, you can imagine yeah. what what Jerry Jerry does of an evening, mm. can't you? Can I ask? Yeah, do you keep your alcohol in the cupboard now? Whereas in the seventies, you had a tray, didn't you? Oh, right. Or a little drinks cabinet or perhaps a little top with the drinks in the glasses they always used to be on show in the sitting room now we yeah. don't have a we no? don't have a booze cupboard no, no it's it, on top it, of the it's fridge. all out on display yeah. yeah such as we've got a cupboard for tea but, yeah but not but for not for booze, booze. Not, not for booze <laughs> that's because that because it's readily drunk <laughs> faster than the teas but uh, Probably, jerry's yeah. not really looking forward to christmas because there's too much socializing yeah mm. And uh, it's interesting because Jerry isn't the social animal. He's the he's the he perceives his role as being dragged round. Yeah, Margot makes him Margo. go to these things. Yeah. I think that's that's and what, she's what the great. Um, she's a great socialiser, isn't but, she? But did you have a, a, a round of people you'd go to at, at Christmas regularly? I remember like we go down me grands and we go down me got me godmothers, um, mm. but um, and maybe sort of some other relative but that was about it we didn't really go in for societies or things like no. that always right. had a, my dotty great aunt used to come down from london she all was right. fantastic and uh we, then we used to go and visit grandparents on boxing day all right how about you lisa we would um always actually because my 
nan used to come over Christmas Day. So I can remember going over to pick her up in the car with my dad and bringing yeah. her back for Christmas dinner and then she'd have to be taken back home later in the day. I don't remember visiting anybody because obviously my um, one of my grandparents, grandfathers died before I was born. Mm. And I don't remember going there at Christmas. And the other one died in 1980. So, yeah. you know, I can remember watching Box of Delights there, but not going on Christmas Day. Yeah, but uh, Margot's order is is still wrong because she doesn't drink milk stout, which is what appears. <laughs> Can you to imagine be... her with a pint of milk stout sat in the snug? Like yeah, <laughs> Ina Sharples. Ina Sharples. Actually, she'd probably get on really well with Ina Sharples. She probably would. Yes. But now, there's a spin-off series. <laughs> but Tom Tom's made some homemade crackers yes. as well, yes. hasn't he? Um, with um, with paper hats in it made out of newspapers mm-hmm. and the insides of the, the, the crackers of toilet, toilet rolls. Yeah, yeah. And, and the colour supplement right round on yeah. yeah. They pushed the boat out because they bought multiple newspapers and a colour supplement. Yeah. I was going to say, where did all the newspapers Perhaps come from? Perhaps they got them yeah. from, from Margot and Jerry. Perhaps yeah. they had their vegetables wrapped in them. Yeah, mm. maybe. Yeah. Uh, but Christmas has cost them 15p <laughs> this year because they've had to buy balloons. Yes. You, did you care for balloons much? We, we had balloons. Mm. I remember having the balloons on the ceiling with the other decorations. Were you any good at blowing them up? No, my dad used to blow them up. I actually had a pump. Did you All have right. a... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing the actions, Warren. Nobody can see you. <laughs> I felt better over it. Warren's hand was going like Billy over there. Yeah. But <laughs> Tom apparently dresses up as Santa of mm. <laughs> Christmas Eve Warren, Warren's vibrating now I don't know why um, so we, we, we never we never get to see the costume but what do you imagine goes on uh, <laughs> or comes off as the case maybe because there's the comment yes. isn't there it better have been you last year dressed as Santa so yeah does Tom come in at, at sort of midnight and demonstrate his sack or something I don't know oh it'll be the are you being sir flashing Santa yeah. <laughs> ho 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 but ne- next day, um, Margot's delivery has not arrived. No. Because they don't work Christmas Day. Surprise, mm. surprise. Mm, yes. But people did work Christmas Day. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, in Diary of a Nobody, um, there's reference to the trains running on Christmas Day. So once upon a time. Ooh. Yeah. Well, it's like in A Christmas Carol, when you see a sort of um, a Christmas Carol, there's always... Yeah. Like, because he sends the boy yeah. to the butchers to get the biggest goose you've yeah, we're, know, in we're, the window. What goose shop was open Christmas morning? Yeah, so go in and get a goose. It's not Tom Cratchit, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't Tom Cratchit. Who am I thinking of? Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim. Oh, Tom was his brother-in-law. <laughs> but Jerry's got political. He was offset. You never saw him. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry has political chicken box as he Margo ring, yeah. rings round. And I love the thing where he does it. And he's um, uh, Paul Anton. He's pulling his jumper aside, looking down at his chest. But if they're political, are they to the left or to the right? Yeah. <laughs> but so the Prime Minister to be yes. has yeah. political chicken, chicken box. box. Yeah. But what's this about Robert De Niro? Oh, Warren? yes, this is one of Robert De Niro's most favourite comedy shows. Okay, it's a bit weird, isn't it? But leading to? Leading to the fact that um, when they were talking about uh, the part, when he played Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. they were talking, they were trying to find somebody to cast as the blind man. Yeah. Mm. And he went. There's only one man that can do this. I will do it if you employ Richard Briers to do this part. Mm. And everyone sort of looked at him and said, "What? This this guy Richard Briers really good in comedy. Um, he's a Royal Shakespeare actor. Mm. Oh, 
Does that make him good? Because <laughs> Robert De Niro. <laughs> and they were firm friends until he passed away. All right. He was a great mm. fan and never knew. And, and when he came on set, he, he greeted him like a, a long-lost friend. Richard Price nev- never worked Robert De Niro, knew who he was, but never sort of... He just greeted him like a family. Oh, yeah. And he says, I love you in that comedy show, The, the Good Life. <laughs> <laughs> but Tom and Barbara come round, carol singing, mm-hmm. sort of. And... Uh, we, uh, we, is that what... Did you go carol? Sorry, I, eh? did you both go carol no, singing? No, never. No. Why no? did you? I did it once and I did exactly what they did. Well, something, something, you, something. You do, the, you do the first few lines and then you just draw no, and, just, no, and then no, you find no, that no. everybody's doing it. <laughs> Which is why nobody knows yeah. the words. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, nice close-up of the real BBC fire. Yes, <laughs> with jabber lights. Yeah. Mention of Mrs. Dooms Patterson. I always wonder what she looks like. Do you think that could be a descendant of Mrs. Fox? Because she's quite a rotund yeah. lady by the sounds of it. I like the reference to Margot and Jerry's friends had a conjurer once. You can really tell the circles that they they, they sort of operate in. Mm. Ali Bongo pops round for Christmas. Because didn't, didn't we, um, when we were looking at staying on the Isle of Wight once, there was a hotel. Oh God, they had table magic. And we went, no, I'm oh, not going no. to that hotel. Uh, it was the description of table magic from the magician. Yeah, to surprise and delight you. Yeah. Always fascinating, never embarrassing. <laughs> Makes making you wonder what the conjurer had got out one week, you know. Well, when I lived on the Isle of Wight, yeah. uh, one of our PCSOs was a conjurer and oh. he used to go round yeah. doing hotels. Yeah, so right? that's a uh, uh, yeah. So the island's leading that. mentalist. Yes, yes. that would be him, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> But they, they, they have a go with the crackers mm-hmm. and everybody shouts bang apart from Margot. Who shouts crack. Crack. So we get Margot's crack demonstrated. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, she, she's confused because she's got the inside of a toilet roll. <laughs> and then we this is like the real, I think, the memorable scene, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, she refuses to, to wear the hat because it's the Daily Mirror <laughs> and uh, she's got to have the telegraph. And then the joke about the ooh-ah birds. Yeah, not understanding that at all. Which, which of course, lays, lays square eggs. And the, the sad thing about Margot is the fact that she lives in this synthetic world, doesn't she? She needs to keep up with the Joneses or she's nobody. Well, yes. That, and that, she, has quite, she has quite a hollow opinion of herself, doesn't that, she? That is actually, the sort of the, if there is a moral to this yeah. story, it's mm. about sort of friendship and what things really matter. So, mm. yes. Turns page. <laughs> Get that one quiet. No one living here. But Margot, Margot is confused that the, the games they're suggesting are childish. Yeah. And and makes she, you wonder what her Christmases were like when she was a child. Yeah. Mm. But she said she should do something. They should do something that adults do. Yeah. Jerry's dirty laugh. Jerry Snickers, isn't he? Loves- Jerry. And she, she's not. She's not keen on squeezing together in cupboards playing sardines. Did you ever play sardines? No. It's, it's one of those things that always gets referred to in stories. The first thing... That, that and I've never played it. I the think first, it's quite a middle-class yeah. game, yeah. don't you? The, the first time I'd ever heard it referred to was in um, Dr. McDemus Die, yeah. when they say, well, ooh, goody, sardines. Is there an episode of Inside Number 9 that's Yes, about there's an episode, yes. 
Yes, they all end up in the same cupboard. Mm. And is it as it's an episode Sounds a of, bit racy, can be a bit racy. No, no, it's um quite dark. It's isn't quite it? dark, really? yeah. I I can't go into what happens because it's a spoiler for anybody who's not seen it, but yeah. I'll tell you after. Okay. But Margot doesn't know how to join in, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's given a talking to in the kitchen yes. by Tom. <laughs> I just love the way he, he grapples with her. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hmm. <laughs> she's petrified isn't she? she doesn't know what's coming next no. but but when she lets her hair down as it were yeah. she really does she really yeah. enjoys herself playing the balloon game mm. oh, I like, like the cheating with the <laughs> sticking, it, sticking it sticking it to Felicity Kendall's head <laughs> apparently an orange went down Margot's dress at one point <laughs> as well it was deemed lost <laughs> lost yes but <laughs> No, I just got a vision that I want to take away from me now. <laughs> How was it retrieved? Yes, um, forceps. Eh? Forceps. Nothing involving spoons, was it? Oh, you might be. Yes. Uh, Calip- but ba- basically, Margot enjoys herself, doesn't she? Does. She? Yeah. And the, they've got a present in the form of some giant green jumpers. Yeah. They were fantastic. That they're homemade. They, they've died with some. Horrible, vegetable dye, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Pale, sort of wishy-washy green. <laughs> They're like huge. And can you imagine Margot wearing them? <laughs> to one of uh, Mrs... Um, Doom Patterson's... Doom Patterson's Doom's... Soirees. Soiree, mm. yeah. But for the final bit, the present arrives mm. in the form of a very well-behaved cow. It was yes. very well-behaved, wasn't mm. it? And I just put cow in studio klaxon. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just thinking of Blue Peter or something like Never that. Never play with children or uh, animals or cows. But, but it's a lovely little episode, isn't it's it? Such it? It's a beautiful episode. You do feel very at home watching it, I think. Because, yeah. um, you know, these characters became favourites, I, th- I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, there's a thing that perhaps from sort of my point of view, they weren't that identifiable because they lived, you know, in sort of suburban yeah. area. But... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 nice to see Margot having fun. I think that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? It's watchable for every member of the family, isn't it? Yes. From children to families who are probably a bit sloshed at this point. <laughs> so they, so they should be. They sort of live in the kind of area I lived in, but a bit more upmarket. Yeah, yeah. You know, all filmed of... in Kew Ferry Road in Northwood. Yeah, do you know it well? It's off the Pinner Road. Right. Have you been there then? And he used to work near there. Oh, right. My station was around the my first station was around the corner at Northwood. Oh, there you go. I used to walk past it and did not know what it was. Ah. Right, well there's our first thing. Mm-hmm. And we will be back later Ooh. with, with some, a little more Christmas with something there. a bit more panto. Yeah. So hey. we'll see you soon then. Okay. Bye bye. Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin, and to Warren as well. Both of whom will be back later. later. Yes, they will. Now, Simon and Ken from Mm -hmm. the Exton Moss Experiment take us back further in time than we've ever been before as they look at... Flash Gordon. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone, and hello to listeners of Round the Archives. This is the Exton Moss Experiment, breaking in yet again. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we have a little podcast, largely inspired by Round the Archives actually, where we look at classic 
television and a few other bits and pieces that we just fancied watching at the time. And we've done the occasional little snippet for Round the Archives. I've known Andy and Lisa for more years than any of us probably care to remember. Andy and I used to work together in a chemical factory in Poole when we were a significant amount younger. And what we're going to watch today and then talk you through is something that will be very familiar for those of you of a certain age who used to watch Saturday morning's kids' telly or who used to watch the uh, the morning telly that was on in school holidays in the early 80s, I suppose it would have been, the American black and white Flash Gordon. And we're going to watch the first episode of Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, and this is from 1940. So that make it make it the oldest thing that we've watched so far, isn't it? It's by far the oldest thing. Um, that would and be, yes. only the second American thing that we've watched. Third. Third, yeah. We're drifting across the pond more frequently these days. Before we launch into the glory of 70-year-old American television, should we uh, get out the sonic screwdrivers? We should indeed. What have we got for tonight? Well, today's tonic screwdriver is Papillon Gin, which has 17 different botanicals for a complex full flavour, including Dartmoor botanicals. So it has... Um, among other things, gorse flowers, hawthorn, rowan berries, and Devon violets. Far be it so, for me to dispute the uh, the card. It tastes like it's made from butterflies. It's wonderful stuff. This is lovely. There's so I mean, many. It is lovely. I have no mm. idea what a butterfly tastes like. You've obviously had a more varied diet than I've had. Actually, well, one must try everything once. Um, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> Diving off a cliff. There is Morris dancing. To be fair, there's Morris dancing. There are so many flavours in there that all work. I can't separate them out, but it's a bloody lovely gin. It, it is absolutely lovely. It's subtle. It doesn't hit you straight off, and but it just has layers of taste that, that comes through. So you have a sip and it, it's quite floral. And then more woody notes come through mm. and barky tastes. And it just kind of hits you with wave after wave. This yeah. is absolutely lovely. There's a very slightly sharp aftertaste to it. But I, I rate my gins these days on how quickly I could finish the glass. And I could happily neck that. I'm giving it five. Oh, oh this is a definite five for me. I don't dare rate mm. it on that scale because I rate pretty much everything a five. Mason's Yorkshire Tea Gin. Oh, that was, that was awful. Really, looking back, I should have given that negative Bernard's. But this we, is five We have Bernard's, discussed negative yeah, Bernard's before. We have. But five out of five on the Bernard scale. Very definitely for the Papillon Gin. So, we're happy with that. Well, we've we've downed a well, halfway downing a gin. Shall we open the black archive and see what's in there? This is our next regu- regular segment, and it's where we look at things that don't exist anymore, but we would like to. So, Ken, what's your choice for something that we'd love to see come back to the archive? Pulling out of the archive today, I'm going to choose the 1949 BBC version of The Time Machine. Nice. It was never recorded, it was broadcast live, and there are scant production photos, but from what little there is on the net, um, the production photos look very nice. Yeah, I think I've seen three, and it got very, very good reviews It did. The time. Science fiction in those days was a, a bit of a rarity, so, well, on, on BBC television it certainly was, and it's just the fact that it's missing, and I love the time machine. So that's and, and that's, I think it was the only science fiction TV that the BBC did in the nineteen forties. I wouldn't like to go that far. I don't know enough about archive TV. It just—it's a significant gap 
because I love H.G. Wells, and so that's going to be the one that I pull out of the archive. And to date, I think it's the only British TV adaptation of The Time Machine. Other H.G. Wells stuff's been done, I don't think The Time Machine has. It's been made into films a couple of, couple of times. I wouldn't like to say, I don't think it has. If you know any different boys and girls, please do write in. What's your choice? My choice, and I'm, I'm going to move away from archive television. Okay. And recognise that there are films that are missing from the archives as well. Fair and I'm going to choose a Lon Chaney horror film called London After Midnight. It's about a serial killer in London. It's one of the um, sort of holy grails of missing horror films. There are, again, a very few production stills from it. It was supposed to have been incredibly, incredibly creepy. And with missing films, because they were globally distributed for use in cinema, there's actually a bit of a higher chance of things coming back. There was a, um, the full version of Metropolis from the 1920s uh, and added about an extra 40 minutes or something. It was a huge chunk mm. that was dropped out. I mean, it, it's a giant chunk of a film, but for that era, it's two hours of film or something. Yeah. Have we actually got the full, full version of Metropolis I now? Think, I think so. Um, I think it was found somewhere in Brazil, Argentina, 10 or 15 years ago. Because that was the, there was um, an original version which was much longer, wasn't it? Is that um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the one. And the other, what was the other one? From a, a slightly early Nosferatu. That was another one that was cut to pieces and found in bits everywhere, mm. and then a, a full version of that turned, or more or less a full version, didn't it? I think so. I, I'm not sure that one's 100 percent complete, mm. um, but I, I think the version of Metropolis that turned up is complete. Those are our choices for the Black Archive, so we will crack on with Flash Gordon and let you know what we think. Chapter 1 of Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe! With Larry Buster Crab. Following in the wake of the distressed condition of the world, a ravaging plague has visited the Earth. The Purple Death that leaves only a purple spot on the forehead of its victims. The world's greatest scientists have assembled to combat this mysterious malady. Listen to this. Just sighted a strange spaceship from another planet, which Zarkov believes has connection with Purple Death. Investigating Flash Gordon. Okay, we've just watched Chapter 1 of uh, Flash Gordon... Conquers the Universe. This was the third of the Buster Crab film serials from the 1930s. This one was made in 1940 and was later condensed into a film version called The Purple Death from Outer Space. It must be a hell of a condensation because it's 13 episodes. 13 episodes of about 25 minutes each down to an hour and a half is cutting out a lot. It was a feature-length film. It's still not going to be much more than an hour and a half, is it? (laughs) That was fairly terrible. Um, it ranged from the wildly hammy to the absolutely amateur in, in terms of acting. It's very, very much of its time. Although I've got to give kudos to... I, you're, you're busting to come in here, but I've got to give kudos to some of the special effects in terms of set design. Put the sets look fantastic. Yes, they have. Costume design is, is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, I, I really enjoyed that. It's... <laughs> For anybody of my era who used to watch this on the uh, on telly in the mornings when uh, you're on school holidays, this is incredibly nostalgic and incredibly entertaining. Yes, it's not the greatest. There is some hammy acting. <laughs> Ming is dreadful and always has been dreadful. Yeah. 
Dale Arden's entire role is to turn up and uh, um, and get changed into a posh frock and then get left behind. And Flash Gordon turns up in a, a shirt and tie at the beginning of the film. He's flying a spaceship in a shirt and tie. I th- isn't that supposed to be sort of military uniform without the jacket? No, it just looks like a shirt and tie. It's terrible. But he gets a pantomime costume of his own. The, 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 the costumes are very pantomime. The so Ming so- the Merciless, though, is very reminiscent of Max von Sydow 40 years later. Mm. It's because I'm comparing it to Max von Sydow and he improved on the part. Enormously, yes. yeah. I was Because when we first put this on, the copyright notice says 1934, so we mm. actually thought that IMDb had got it wrong, but the, uh, the film itself is credited as 1940, but so I was looking at it as it, of its time, and yes, you've got little sparklers coming out of the spaceships on wires. It's nearly 80 them. years ago. It is. But then I looked at it and thought, only 12 years later, there was War of the Worlds. And there's a chasmic difference there. There is, but this this was not on the, the budgetary scale of War of the Worlds. It's no excuse. I mean, before, before this, you'd had things like Metropolis. Yes. So this, this was a cheap filler. Mm. It's of its time. Um, it, it's of its time. It's incredibly entertaining. Um, oh, for you, maybe. I th- that was torture. Oh, goodness me. I do remember seeing these on Saturday mornings. Because Saturday Morning Kids TV was filled with black and white stuff. I remember things Champion like... Champion the Wonder Horse. And the Little Rascals and things like that. Um, wild Horses. Don't remember or that what, Was it Wild... No, White Horses. No, I still don't remember that Some one. dreadful French thing. It, it, it's got a very nostalgic theme tune. I suspect if you saw any of it now, it would be dire. Yeah. So what for a later episode then? Yeah, wake me up when it's over. In terms of, it's just a real shame. I think the part, part of the problem is, you're, as you've said, it's an 80-year-old film print. It's not been archived terribly well. There's not a lot of commercial value in it, so it's just been stored in a cupboard somewhere. Looking at it, it could probably be cleaned up quite a long way, but there's absolutely no commercial value in doing it. So why would they... The sound's quite indistinct in a lot of places. And and does vary a lot in level. Yeah. So um, from a technical point of view, that doesn't do it any favours. Sets look great. They um, they do, yeah. The rocket ships are actually pretty good. I mean, I, I can't actually look at those rocket, rocket ships and not see the rocket ship from Flash Gordon. I wonder where they got their influence from for the Flash Gordon 1980 movie. A little from column A, a little from column B. I, I, I think it might have been, it might have been. Although I don't remember the Penosaurus turning up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and don't forget the pit room. A room that's just got a big pit in it. Yeah, which Flash Gordon falls into at the end of the, the episode we watched. Big dramatic cliffhanger. We watched the start of episode two, and he grabs onto a convenient sort of hook hanging out of the wall that nobody else has managed to grab onto when they've been knocked down into mm. the pit. Considering that they fell about 200 yards in the end of chapter one, yeah. I think if he had grabbed onto a hook after that, it would have torn his arm out of the socket. Yeah, but if, if you look at the um, the way they they had those little models falling down the pit in chapter chapter two, it was only the bloke who went who fell in with him that went down. So there there was always an accusation that they uh, the cliffhangers of Flash Gordon and King of the Rocket Men and Buck Rogers and all of those sort of were they gratuitously re-edited? Yes, well, no, refilmed. <laughs> But it is what it is, and it was of its time. I I really enjoyed that. Do you mean nobody had a DVD player to pick faults in this in 1940? How remiss. Yeah, I could quite happily not watch another chapter of of Flash Gordon of its time, but that bored the arse off me. (laughs) Well, fair enough. 
But we were coming at this from a different angle. Yes, we I, are. I was very young when I saw the repeats of this when I was younger. So um, I wasn't. Yeah. Right. So we will, we will leave it there. We've got a, a mixed review on that one. Uh, but they're they're quite fun to watch, and particularly if you remember them from the time, it, it's very nostalgic. It's very so, summer holidays. That I remember, you know, the six week holidays from school. This Skippy was, was another one that used yes, to be it on. was. Um, and Flipper, Flipper, I actually quite enjoyed, but Skippy, I just remember the young boy kept touching Skippy's ass. Even when I was a kid, I thought it was very weird that he kept giving Skippy a little tap on the ass to get him to move. Um, well, maybe he'd watch plebs. See previous episode for this reference. <laughs> yeah, see our sitcom episode. <laughs> We've smashed our way into Andy and Lisa's podcast. We shall sidle out quietly. Thank you for giving us um, the time of day. We'll, we'll take our gin and hand it back and hand the podcast back to the experts. We shall see you in another podcast. Take care. Bye now. Thank you very much to Simon and Ken. Yes, thank you, boys. Another excellent article. And I'm sure they'll be back in the new year at I'm some sure point. they will, yes. Now, let's travel to 1969, mm-hmm. where Nick and Paul will talk about... The Avengers. the archives listeners it's me paul the shy yeti from the shy life podcast i'm here with niggerman hello hello um nick i'll tell you exactly what we're talking about this uh this time beautiful gun tara it is isn't it my uncle had it made specially then he never used it why not oh the young man married my cousin of his own free will are you sure you don't want to come sailing february and the channel it's not my idea of heaven. Now I'm going to the heart of the country. Shooting, fishing, fine wine, good food, away from it all. So this time on the show, uh, I want to talk to the listeners about uh, the Avengers, which I know you're, you're a fan of the new Avengers more than the Avengers. Yes, I've got a healthy respect for the Avengers. And, of course, I remember that these, these episodes and, and, and Appeal I would have seen in 1983, 84 with the Channel 4 repeats. Yeah. Um, and I liked them. I, I watched them every week, but New Avengers, I suppose, was the, my first well, taste remember, of the... And, and for you me, remember that from the time as well. I think if, if you... I, I can understand people's feelings uh, if they grew up with the Avengers and didn't quite gel with New Avengers, but I suppose I, because I had the New Avengers first, that's always going to be my favourite. And I liked... I don't know. It was just a combination... The the tone of it I felt was I know um, Patrick McNee didn't like them but I, I felt the tone of them was were just right and Brian Clemens and Dennis Spooner's scripts were ooh, I think I, I think I got into the show all around the same time my only preference for the um, the Emma Peel and Tara King episodes is that I was very keen on the 60s yeah. and the whole look of the 60s particularly when I saw it in the 80s. Yeah. And, and I, I, like, I like both, but uh, I don't have any particular favouritism mm. because I 
I don't remember either from the time that they were new. Also, the the other thing that blew me away about the new Avengers was uh, that was idiosyncratic to the Avengers anyway. Was the the, the whole the spy thing? I've always loved spy things, but also the humour, mm. um, particularly uh, with with the three leads. I mean. You, we were talking about this last night, weren't we? You, do, you don't, although there's humour between the three leads in the professionals, it, it's not as whimsical and, and mm. uh, surreal as, as it is. With well, I like I like the humour in the new Avengers, but I also like the humour in the Avengers. And yeah. I think I might have said to you that I would quite happily sit and watch all of the tag sequences at the end of <laughs> of the the the, 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 the particularly. Yeah. In the Tara King yeah. era, they get really kind of way out, and the, the things like doing a champagne pyramid and uh, and things like yeah. that, and, and and from from doing that to completely out off the wall. Now, what what I want to to particularly talk about, going back to the Avengers, is my particular favourite era of the Avengers. We're going to watch one particular episode. Don't get me wrong, uh, Emma Peel is great, and Donna Rigg is great as Emma Peel but yes. I've also thought uh, and, yeah, and Honor Blackman's great as well but yeah. it tends to be Emma Peel that gets remembered yeah. and it also tends to be Tara King who gets bad press and is blamed, somehow blamed for the show going downhill uh-huh. um, as if she wrote the scripts as well as the <laughs> uh, and uh, I've always preferred Tara King to Emma Peel because there's something I mean I, I, as I said we're just, I'm, this episode we're about to watch I mean I, I saw all of the Channel 4 repeats but that was a, sort of 35 mm. years ago but I haven't seen a Tyra King episode for a long time and also I, I yeah I, but I can remember enjoying the Tyra King episodes very much and also I, I think she her character was a little bit more accessible she's more vulnerable she's more vulnerable uh, which I liked um, and also maybe even more vulnerable than Purdy um, but but also the 68, 69 the fashions are great her, yeah. her flat is it looks amazing yeah. she has she has a fireman's pole in, in her flat and <laughs> well, we won't ask about that you know, what she does in her spare time is after her but, um, and, and, and um, the fact that she's starting a fight with a ham using a handbag as part of the, yeah. the, the, the she, she's a lot more yes. um you know, also you you have to wonder you know because there was a lot of not innuendo all done in the best possible taste as kenny ever is but you know with um emma Pe- mrs peel you often wondered you know sort of well what about mr peel you know well mr peel does appear in her last episode yeah and and he looks identical to john steed ah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is one of the, the yeah. rare things they do actually have a crossover uh, i know the actual recording is a little bit confusing as to yes i think they'd already started i'd rec- actually be interested to see that at some point yes yeah, the forget me forget me not it's I quite a good episode i think i must have seen it on the repeats but i i, I don't the other thing, my first—I suppose—my first introduction introduction to the Avengers was um, in 1978. They put out a, a new Avengers magazine, mm. you know, a, just just a one-off, you know, with and they had tons and loads and loads and loads of pictures from the original. And of course, I learned so much about the original Avengers that I didn't know before. Mm. So I, I probably wasn't aware of the the other girls and and, and the old episodes and. Uh, it was it was fascinating, and they had a. a I th- I'm pretty certain it had a picture from. I th- yeah. Not. I uh, I think Linda Thorson had even started recording as Tara because there was a 
her early episodes were, were quite sort of complicated by changes in in production team yeah. and scripts were, tr- were were scrapped and yeah. and I have a feeling that uh, that uh, Diana Rigg even came back after she'd left to do the crossover scene yeah. or they said that certainly it's, it's yeah. quite a complicated um, it wasn't necessarily filmed in order and everything uh, yeah there's a scene on the stairs where Tari's com- coming yeah. into the building and um, I'm so Emma's glad they leaving. did that I, yeah. I, I love I love little continuity pieces like that you and, know it's, and, it makes and, the whole thing a bit more and, real and Emma shows Tara the way he likes his teeth which direction yeah, he likes his teeth <laughs> and that sort of thing yeah I, th- I, I must have seen that clip at some point but, uh, but no it's it's a lovely idea I wish I, I wish there'd been a crossover for, I suppose it's because of Do- we're treated with we're treated with Doctor because there's an ongoing narrative yeah. whereas um, you do see pictures in New Avengers of his previous assistants or yes. combatant character, whatever you, you want do, to You do, yes, because uh, there's there's black and white photographs of Honor Blackman uh, and, and uh, you know the three, and, and there's a there's a comedy scene where he's he's preparing a, a drink for his girlfriend, and, and his girlfriend's commenting on this, and he's thinking he's talking about horses. Oh yeah, yeah she was a feisty. Yeah. I had to take a whip to her. <laughs> I had to have her put down. You know, it's just lovely. <laughs> yeah. It's just a lovely comical scene. But I think that, I also, think. I believe that when the Avengers, when they consider bringing the Avengers back, that in the very early plans for the new Avengers, they were almost thinking of maybe continuing with 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 Steed and Tara, yeah. um, because I, th- I I believe that Patrick Whitney and Linda, Linda Thorson were still promoting the show long after they it, they into the early seventies. Yeah, into the that's early seventies. That's so. what got the backing. Yeah. I think it was the French that backed the new Avengers, yeah. and they they did a champagne. Apparently, they did a champagne commercial in mm. in uh, Paris, yeah. where they did it at Steed and Tara, and that was nineteen seventy five. Yeah. That was long after the show yeah. finished, and uh, they said, you know, someone asked them. Apparently, you know, is will the Avengers ever come back? Or, so, you know. Show, show us the money, eh? yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and sure enough, it it did, and I'm I'm very glad it. Uh, Patrick Mini is a little less than gracious about was a little less than gracious yeah, about I it, think... but I I I the thing is I had no problem seeing with him as a a third party father figure because I knew no different. Mm. Uh, I didn't see him as as a, you know because I hadn't seen that before, so I don't I didn't see any harm in it really. I think poor um poor Tara gets the blame for the problems with the show. Uh, her early episodes are all over the place because they're scripts that were meant, you know, that didn't work out. And, yeah. and Tara's wearing a blonde wig in some episodes. It's a bit all over the place. But uh, a lot of the episodes that I really love of Tara's are ones that I've seen other people totally trash. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's one of her first acting roles. Yeah. I think she does, it's free, it, she's, she's great. And, she has maturity um, beyond her years. In, yeah, in and then yet uh, I've heard... I've heard people criticise, you know, her be blamed for all sorts of things. Yeah. Like, oh, she's only inexperienced, and so I think she's. I wouldn't want her any other way. I think yes. Tara's a great character. Yeah. I, I also think there's a problem I have with some Avengers episodes. The colour Diana Rigg episodes are very formulaic. It's it, there's always a villain of the week. You can almost m- match mm. the different. You know, considering that the show had advert breaks, mm. you can almost say like by this point in the advert break, there'll have there'll have been a few. You know, various people getting killed yeah. in different ways, and then they'll find out the the twists about the same point. Yeah. And, and I don't think with the Tower King ones, the the types of episodes, whether they work or not, is another matter. But um, they're not as formulaic, and you never quite, you don't know quite so much yeah. where they're aiming for. And I, I think my the one that sticks out for me is the stop. No. Stop me if you've heard this one before. That was too fast. Yeah. And there was several 
photographs of that in the in the Avengers um, in magazine, yeah. the New Avengers magazine, yeah. um, and I remember being oh this is this is this is a bit different um, and enjoying the episode when I saw it. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying the Tara King episodes are better than. Dana Riggs, Mrs. Peel episodes, but um, no. Well, personally, I do prefer Tara. I, I prefer Tara King over, but obviously, I still love Mrs. Peel. But I feel that she get she doesn't need anyone to be. She doesn't need an ambassador. She doesn't need an ambassador, yeah. and I've always been an ambassador for Tara. And yes, you're and, like me. You like you like sticking up for the underdog. You don't yeah. particularly think like everybody else. Because if you're not watching it because she's not Dana yeah. Rigg, then you're missing a treat. Yeah. Um, so yes, exactly. I, I I've never had a problem. You know, I I didn't watch them in eighty three, eighty four, and and see, say, oh, it's really gone downhill. With, <laughs> you know, I, actually, I think if anything, I actually preferred Tara too. Yeah. Sergeant Groom, nice to see you, old chap. You're looking very fit. I don't know how you do it. The years just don't seem to leave any mark on you. Thank you, sir. Well, isn't that lovely? She's a beauty, isn't she? Yes, sir. Good morning. Laura, my dear Laura, you look absolutely lovely. There's no doubt about it, the country life suits you. There's no other word for it. You look radiant. Thank you. Who are you? My name is Fenton Grenville, and you're Bill Bassett. Well, now we're all here, we might as well begin. Sexton, would you please lock the door? Now, just a minute. Exactly what's going on? Now, Bill, be a good chap. Up to now, everything has been civilised and quite delightful. Don't spoil it. Now, the episode that I want to show you uh, is... Uh, well, this article is appearing in the December 2019 yeah. episode of Round the Archives. And um, unfortunately, there's not really... I know this isn't a particularly Christmassy edition, but I still felt I, I wanted well, to... Not, I suppose, yes, it's going out of Christmas. Yes, it? yeah. I, I still sort of wanted to have one that kind of has some um, Christmas connection. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's only one properly Christmas episode of the Avengers and it's not um, a Tara King episode it's a black and white uh, Emma Peel episode so the the episode I have selected does have a very vague Christmas connection um, it's called Takeover and it's from about April 1969 and um, now the premise of this episode is that Steed and a, a, a sort of friend that he knew in the war happy Christmas happy Christmas hello Bill hello Laura and hello, Wotan. Compliments of the season. Just a little something for the tree. John. Laura. Good. Good to see you again. Good to see you, John. And you too, Bill. So, we've got other guests. It's going to be the greatest Christmas we've ever had. John Steve. Fenton Grenville. Now, what's all this about Christmas? Bill, you haven't told them about Christmas? You haven't told them. To tell you the truth, we'd forgotten. Forgotten? Chris. Not to worry, I will explain. You see, Bill and I, we were taken prisoner in Nanking. There was no window in the cell. We lost all track of time. So we made our own calendar. Eventually, we found we'd celebrated Christmas in February. So they've been celebrating their own special Christmas ever since. Only this time, we really had forgotten. Oh, don't worry about that, Laura. The main thing is, we are all here together. Now, any other guests? Yes, my two assistants and my niece. Your nickname? That makes one, two, three, seven. Great for party games. Now, the crackers, the party hats, the lot. In the car, It'll be just like old times. Then I consider myself fortunate to be able to join your celebration, Mr. Steed. We were just about to change for dinner. Shall we leave the rest of the introductions until then? I think that's a very good idea. I'll just collect my things. And again, happy Christmas. Why didn't you tell me? We'd forgotten. It's true. All right. All right. We'll go through with this charade. We're business associates. 
But if he guesses there's anything wrong, if you even hint at it, you are dead. We'll we'll start watching it and we'll probably break halfway through okay. and, and and then come back at the the end uh, with with uh, with opinions. But uh, yes, um, do do, uh, do do check out some Tara King episodes if you if yeah, you haven't. I, I remember them being very colourful. Yeah. Do you think I'm pretty? I think I am. I think I could be very pretty. Who am I to argue with a lady? I'm not a lady. That's why I was expelled from medical school. It's my name. It affected my whole character. Ah, the great goddess Circe, who could turn men into wild beasts. <laughs> Except I can't. I need to have my nose altered, you know. Then I'll be really pretty. It's a very nice nose. It's all right. The second one I had was best, though. I spent all my money on new noses. Well, everyone should have a hobby. I spent absolutely every penny I get on new noses. Every penny. I need bed now. Good night, Mr. Steed. Good night. You ought to leave here, Mr. Steed. Fenton doesn't like you at all. So we're about halfway through the episode. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I'm enjoying it very much. Uh, I, one forgets how much, how many good production values go into uh, the uh, new, the Avengers, the old Avengers episodes, and the direction's very stylish. Robert First, who directed a lot of the new Avengers. And it's a great, yeah, it's a great episode. Uh, Terry Nation, interestingly, um, when I, I feel that sometimes uh, with Doctor Who, maybe he didn't quite know in which direction to go because he repeated a lot of the storylines. But this one, fl- the story flows very, and the intrigue builds, and, and it, it, it probably, yeah, it's it's got a nice structure to it. It's probably best to the best easiest way of describing the plot is uh, probably the, the genre of home invasion, um, yeah. in, in that. Uh, some cr- criminals yeah. just walk into this, yeah. this couple's house. They live in the country and, yeah, and sort home of in- take over. Yeah, home invasion is always a, a very effective concept because it, it gets to the heart, you know, you're in somebody's house, you know, you kind of, it really is, there is a sort of, the threat is that much more personable. And they've got some nice, nasty baddies in it. Tom Adams, who Doctor Who fans will know from Warriors of the Deep. Uh, Keith Buckley, who turned up as a baddie in the New Avengers episode Sleeper. Dear old John Comer, who was a Last of the Summer Wine regular mm-hmm. uh, as the butler. It's all very suave, though. Yes. Very, um... And these, one of the henchmen here was, I can't remember his name, but he was the boss man in the Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's it's very, very stylish. And, and um, uh, considering that I... Um, was uh, talking so much about Tara. She, she's not in it that much this yeah. episode, but that's that's for a reason because um, Steed is going. Yeah. Steed stumbles on the 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 situation, yeah. visiting uh, the owner of the house who's been is being held hostage. And um, well, I think we'll we've already seen yeah. Tara. We've seen Tara and Steed at the beginning of the episode. The fact that she looks good even in a sou'wester is 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 pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she's, I think she's undoubtedly one of the prettiest of the or if not the prettiest of the the Avengers girls we're about halfway through it's coming to a sort of situation where Steed knows that something's going on but he's trying to find out more um, although there's this polite sort of sheen of everyone's getting on at the party and um, but but that's beginning to unravel and they're, they're off shooting and uh, it may not end well but, yeah, uh, we'll see what happens next. Yeah. Well, perhaps we'll meet again. I hope so. Goodbye. Bye. 
It was careless of me to leave Steed's umbrella and hat, but it was even more careless of you to betray that you'd seen them. Very careless indeed, Miss King. Well, um, we finished. What do you think? Take over. I enjoyed it very much. I, I, I've forgotten how enjoyable the, uh, the the Avengers were, you know, the later Avengers were. Um, lots of familiar faces. Um, There's the craggy-faced guy who was Steed's old friend, uh, one of those actors that you think, oh, yes, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. But uh, you, you, you can't quite place his name. Um, yeah, very enjoyable. Um, the uh, I think if I have one, Chris, the end was a bit rushed. Uh, yeah. They said expedition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have it could have been so a rare case where it could easily have made a ninety minute movie. It was very yes. it was very movie like. It was, and yeah. and, it, and and they gave it the benefit of giving it a nice long time to sort of unfold, and then yes. they had to rush it a little bit. The other know. thing is the um, uh, uh, it was it was almost like an episode of Thriller, you know, mm. which was later on with Brian Clemens, and, and a Thriller episode would have got that hour and twenty minutes yes. or whatever. Absolutely, um, but no, I, um, it's, I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, some good guests, good bad baddies, and uh, and nice to see Tara in action. She she certainly knew her stuff. Yeah, she doesn't get to be in every scene by any means, but. She gets to play an important part, and yes. and and the uh, uh, there was a very daft scene at the end where they're playing invisible golf, yes. and um, then they still manage to smash a, a window, yeah. and and uh, which is why I could quite happily watch those sorts of yes. sillinesses all all, all day. <laughs> um, and and, and I, the, the other thing, I I also not not only do I love this era of the show for some of the characters, we didn't have Mother in this episode. Who is in a lot of the targeting yeah. episodes? I, I, I like, I like that character. I said so why actually. I remember. I remember seeing a picture of him in in this aforementioned New Avengers magazine, and uh, wondering, oh, that's a bit strange. And of course, he was uh, the wonderful Patrick Newell, mm. who's a great whimsical character. Of course, he was. I'm so used to seeing his mother that when I've seen him slightly thinner and walking, yes. um, I'm like, oh, how, how, but he, I thought he was in a wheelchair. Was he an android invasion? Yes, he was. Yeah, and he's he was a colonel there. Yeah, and he's, he's slimmer I'm and not in a wheelchair. Like a by aliens. <laughs> he's slimmer and not in a wheelchair. Do you look at some big infernal cheek? How dare they? Yeah, yeah there's, no, he's, he's, uh, he's great in android invasion. But uh, what I was going to say is that uh, my, my favourite version of the theme music uh, it's, it's easy to forget that before the Black and White Emma Peel series, there's a completely different theme music, which mm. I think is awful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or certainly, no, I don't like it. I can't stand it. I, I love the famous yeah. Avengers theme. I think uh, it's, an, it's it's good. Uh, for me, perhaps a little bit kind of too romantic. Um, I, I, I like the, you know, the new Avengers, you know, the, the, the way the title sequence builds that. Really, but a bit yeah. of a punch. But it works. That This music works better with that uh, with those episodes though because yeah, they've got a little bit more you know and also there's there's a slight more flamboyant version of the theme than there was from the appeal yeah. theme there, there's a, bit, a few more trumpets and and um i i do like the title sequence when they're running that's, running that's around very and, well done, and, yes. and very sort of stylized and yeah. very 60s yeah. but, uh, well thank you very much yeah, uh for, for speaking to me and to the around the archives listeners and um, I'm sure we'll be back in 2020 um, either together or separately um, yeah. for more TV talk Goodbye. it's 7 miles 800 yards 9 inches to be precise Bill 
And we need this house for our ultra-long-range weapon. It's the only house in the district with an unimpeded line of fire. Sexton, don't touch the lighter. Don't touch the lighter! Don't touch the lighter! I should have stayed in town. That's the trouble with the country. Nothing ever happens. Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Paul. Yes, thank you. Paul has just racked up 300 episodes of the Shy Life podcast. He has, yes. Amazing. So that's definitely something to celebrate. It is. Now, Martin returns Mm -hmm. to look at episode two of... Quatermass and the Pit. recent article about episode one of the BBC version of Quatermass and the Pit was so relatively well received by our dear listener, I decided that it might be nice for me to take a rather unprecedented step out of my usual around the archives comfort zone and move beyond the confines of episode one and venture into the uncharted realms of episode two, and perhaps some other time even the rest of the remaining five instalments of this six-part serial. Well, it is a stone-cold classic, and so very influential for the likes of us who enjoy trawling our way through the archives that it probably is the one thing that I might find to be worthy of such scrutiny. Episode 2 of this six-part serial was, as they all were, written by Nigel Neal and directed and produced for the BBC by Rudolf Cartier. Episode 2 is entitled The Ghosts and was broadcast on December the 29th, 1958, just before the New Year. Happily, in the full version, after the opening titles, there is a recap of silent footage from the previous episode, The Half Men, which reintroduces most of the main players and explains the story so far. Tales of fossil finds and fragments, Roni and Judd reconstructing a clay interpretation of a creature, a word interestingly chosen to add to the sense of creeping menace alongside that already familiar occasional fanfare on the music track, and what appears to be an unexploded bomb being found at the dig site, finally bring us round to Colonel James Breen and, ta-da, Professor Quatermass himself, whilst filling in the antagonistic backstory of the behind-the-scenes boardroom battles for control of the British Experimental Rocket Group. The voiceover is fruity, and the film remains mute until the recap of last week's episode and that realisation that the skull of an impossibly ancient age was found in the rock strata somewhere above the strange unexploded bomb or whatever it might turn out to be and suggesting that something else entirely might be going on here 
The professor, played in this serial by the third actor to portray him in an exceptional performance by André Morel, was interrupted for a week during his astonished utterance of five million years. But now that particular discussion with his new deputy at the rocket group, Breen, played with stoic scepticism by Anthony Bushell, can continue, and he is faced with the concrete wall of Breen's mind, as the suggestion of such great age is obviously poppycock, given that the thing has hardly corroded at all. John Stratton's Captain Potter, the poor bugger who might be expected to defuse the thing, is more concerned about what it's made of, which leads to the old professor doing some off-the-cuff experiment with a diamond ring and digging around in the dirt to find something, to Potter's increasing alarm, that might be the horns of a sea mine, but turns out to be some sort of elaborate knob. So, whilst Potter worries about strikers and fuses, the professor is already making the huge leap about whether they once carried some kind of external mechanism. Then, there's just time for a quick name check for carry-on sergeant, before Quatermass rather smugly suggests that Breen should take charge here, as the rocket group could probably spare them both for a couple of days. British experimental rocket group, days without accident, two. Anyhow, with the bizarrely unlikely admission that this is a problem and I enjoy problems, Breen persuades himself to stick around, and it turns out from these civil defence records that Captain Potter has acquired that there are no records of anything falling around here other than a few incendiaries. And Christine Finn's Barbara Judd, bright girl that she is, suggests that they might ask some of the people who live around here, and because Quatermass has indeed spotted an elderly couple still lurking around, she she heads off to do so. Breen, the old misery guts, tells Potter that he should go after her because this isn't a game, which says a lot about what they thought of women back then. And at least Cecilinda's Roney has the decency to finally pipe up with the tart retort that she knows that. Meanwhile, Quatermass prompts Breen about whether he has any guesses as to what the thing might be, and Breen is convinced that this is some kind of experimental V-weapon, a theory which Quatermass dismisses, even though some pretty queer things were cooked up towards the end of the war, as any viewer in the home counties at least would have been well aware of. Interestingly enough, of course, the character of Quatermass himself would have been brewed up from the real-world equivalents working on rockets in Nazi Germany, and some of the strange things that did fall down on London less than 50 years earlier might have been cooked up by those very inspirations. Indeed, if a large V weapon had landed in Hobbs Lane back in 1945 and unearthed this strange artefact then, what a different outcome the world might have had. Not only that, of course, but within the narrative fiction of the Quatermass stories, at least one of Quatermass's own rockets had fallen on London itself, not half a dozen years earlier. Well, let's not dwell. Not one of yours, is it, Prof? Might have been too metatextual for 1958. Meanwhile, the sergeant, played by Michael Ripper, has been digging away at the ground with his group of sappers and has discovered some kind of hole in the side of the thing in the pit. Anyway, the elderly couple, Mr and Mrs Chilcott, are found on their own doorstep, being ushered away from their home by the policeman who allowed them to pop in during the previous week's episode. Mr Chilcott is played in long-suffering silence by Howell Davis, but it is his wife, played by Quatermass stalwart Hilda Barry, who does all the talking, and she is, as ever, bloody brilliant. Surprisingly, she turned up a decade and a half later in an episode of Special Branch I watched recently, still giving her take on dotty old ladies even then. It's a beautiful cameo, full of the need for long woolies and indignity of being the rightful occupiers of a home they're forced to abandon, creeping damp, more than one war, and no recollections of any bombs. Well, they'd have heard the thump, wouldn't they? Other than those little fire ones. They were never going to be moved by bombs or builders, and as they are hurried along by the increasingly exasperated 
contacted police officers, we discovered that the ruined building next door was not collapsing due to bomb damage, but something else. And it's something that she really doesn't want to talk about. The policeman is less forthcoming, dismissing the fact that people won't live in it despite the housing shortage as some tale. But Mrs Chilcott is adamant that the place is haunted and that reporters had come and everything. But she seems a little embarrassed by it all now and ushers her husband away for his supper as our strange little tale of peculiar findings at archaeological digs quite suddenly and seamlessly turns into a ghost story. It's possible that the scene with the Chilcots was only there to help with the set change, to expose more of the buried missile, but what a delightfully eerie scene it is, and Nigel Neal's brilliance at building that sense of creeping menace is well served by it. Quatermass, meanwhile, finds himself back in the world of science as the sappers dig out the hard-packed clay from some sort of hatchway. Barbara Judd is more kindly disposed towards the elderly couple as Potter explains to Breen that she just started telling some kind of ghost story, which is exactly the kind of thing that makes Breen bristle. However, they are interrupted as, deep down in the dark shadows by the lights of repositioned torch beams, the sergeant finds what might be a rock but turns out to be another almost intact human-like skull, which then fills the lens with the full intensity shading of any campfire horror story, like any good skull ought to. Upon this new discovery, Roney leaps into action, something he hasn't done much so far in this episode, and seems oblivious to something Quatermass seems to find quite odd, but that Breen has an irrational explanation for, that these particular finds seem to have been magnificently, if perhaps miraculously, preserved. Roney dashes off to his makeshift headquarters in Crispin's hut, and Quatermass is handed another find, which prompts him to follow. Roney is overexcited and distracted by this new skull, and thinks that this new find will vindicate him in the eyes of his scientific rivals who remain sceptical about his claims. A little bit of foretelling comes from his babbled remarks about someone accusing him of being able to produce a monster from any collection of old bones, but that's a surprise yet to come. It is Quatermass, however, using several long and meaningful stares, who finally gets him to question how these things were so well protected after being found inside what is still presumed to be a fallen bomb. Another mystery is brewing. Meanwhile, the professor is somewhat amused to find out from Barbara that the Chilcots have been talking about a haunted house. Uh, but they are interrupted by a suddenly very sombre-looking potter announcing that they are to pack everything up and that the colonel would like a word. And we cut to a Geiger counter clicking away over the mud of the site. 1959. Radiation, the very word, would strike terror into the hearts of viewers everywhere. Breen, apparently, thought he'd better check, and has found low levels of radiation all around the end of the missile, more or less where the mechanism they had previously assumed to be missing might have been. Quatermass archly suggests that they were clever fellows, the Hun to have developed, then lost, the secret of nuclear propulsion so late in the war. We tried to ignore his own attempts at nuclear-powered flight that proved so handy towards the latter end of the previous Quatermass serial, of course. Here, his smugness is not about whether the BERG had developed one itself later on, but at Breen's insistence upon rearranging the facts to fit his theory. Anyway, things are packed away, samples are taken, and the site starts to get abandoned as lights snap off and we are plunged into an eerie darkness in which Quatermass, his breath visible in the cold night air of the partially external set, glances up at the model shot of the collapsed end terrace house that has piqued his curiosity. Before the practical trucks are loaded up, the police officers raise the barriers and they start to drive away. Quatermass is left almost alone in the dark emptiness of the pit, and there's a so-called haunted house just waiting to be investigated. So he does. 
the place is a ruin, a brilliantly constructed set of a ruin, but a ruin nevertheless. Eerily picked out by torchlight, it proves to be a surprisingly effective-looking haunted house for a small terrace. He's followed in by the police officer Ellis, who recognises him from earlier, and starts to point out that this is not bomb damage, and that he's worked out that it must have been empty since 1927 after some ghost scare, and that people won't live in it despite the post-war housing shortage. He then tells stories of when he was a nipper, because significantly he has local knowledge and how children like him would come and knock on the door for dares because there were tales of noises, bangs and bumps and things being seen. He then opens the door to the kitchen, the part of the house that was considered to be the bad place, which sets us up nicely for more dark fears. Inside the kitchen there are huge scratches cutting deeply into the walls. They're just there. Nothing more is needed. Quadermas asks Ellis what they are, and he dismisses it as the work of kids. Quadermas points out that they must be far bolder than when Ellis was a lad, and Ellis seems affronted, making the excuse that it's all quiet now. And whilst he seems reluctant to admit that he ever saw anything himself, Quatermass is disturbed by what he thinks is a noise. And his sudden, shocking shh is accompanied by that creepy music designed to set us all on edge deep inside that supposedly haunted house. Although the subsequent, I thought I heard... No, I did hear alarms both the police officer and Quatermass himself, but he decides that it's nothing now. I bet it had a nation clinging to their cushions, though, and jumping out of their seats. The art here is all in the excellent performances, the lighting and the soundtrack, and it's deftly handled without resorting to any special effects whatsoever. Quatermass's curiosity has been piqued, however, as he asks about the whereabouts of the Chilcots. We cut to a close view of a teacup held as we pull back in the hands of Miss Groom, a fearsome-looking lady played with bluff bluntness by Madge Brindley. She is a woman who claims to have the gift of second sight and is reading the tea leaves of both the Chilcots. A sea voyage is imminent, apparently, although Mr Chilcott chooses instead to escape silently to his chair just as Quatermass comes calling to disturb the spirits. He's a bit, you know, getting on, being one of Nigel Neal's terrific character-building single lines that say so much. He greets them with a cheery, I'm a scientist, which is expected to explain everything, much as characters in 50s police series introduce themselves with, I'm a police officer, and the plot would thicken. Here, however, there is a momentary confusion because he claims to be concerned with the bomb and Mrs Chilcott is eager to find out whether they've fixed it. Instead, however, he's there to discuss the goings-on at the house next door to their own and one of the great Quatermass and the Pit moments is about to occur as Hilda Barry moves front and centre to describe the terrifying events of the year after the general strike. Miss Groom has little time for scientists, it would seem, scornfully referring to them as sceptics and whilst Quatermass claims to try and be a little more more open-minded, our sympathy is firmly meant to be siding with the rational at this point, which is interesting given where this serial eventually starts moving towards, but we're getting too far ahead of ourselves at the moment. Hilda Barry's performance, describing the disturbances that gradually faded away, is a delight. Shot perfectly to get the most out of her expressive face as she describes the dreadful sounds they heard, the tapping and the knocking and the furniture moving about and the terrible night when Mr Earnshaw arrived screaming at their door after he'd seen a, remember this, mysterious figure in the kitchen, all of which paints a vivid and unforgettable picture of life in that house in Hobbs Lane 30 years earlier and she at least has no doubt that these mysterious scratches were not the work of any children. Sadly, they are still rather bitter at having been made to look foolish by the newspaper reporters back in the day and this puts Miss Groom on her guard against non-believers of her version of the truth 
truth and as Quatermass becomes suddenly aware that Miss Groom, it would seem, is from the rather more foolish end of the occultist spectrum. Ultimately, having been put on the spot by an increasingly bothersome Miss Groom, Quatermass makes his excuses and leaves them to their tea-leaf reading and the close-up of Miss Groom's terror at the next sight she sees in her teacup dissolves to a massive dinosaur skull at the Nicklin Institute that we find out is called Charlie. Quatermass has decided to pay a call on Roni, who is eager to get back to the site of the dig, and as they discuss their mutual dislike of Breen, the camera favours a peculiar gadget on the shelves of Roni's office, which is his little hobby, an attempt at seeing the pictures of the mind's eye, which he calls an optic encephalograph, which, perhaps amusingly, resembles the popular notion of what a space helmet might look like, which is nicely self-referential, given that the popular notion was probably largely shaped by the early Quatermass serials. That said, it's an impressive piece of kit because, as we will find out in later episodes, the blooming thing actually works. Quatermass could indeed have come and helped him tinker with it once he'd been booted out of the rocket group, and they would probably have shared a Nobel Prize or 12. Anyway, with that plot point nicely seeded and packed away for future weeks, Roni opens up his thermos flask full of coffee, no machines in the lobby back then, and returns to the looming clay figure based upon the discoveries that featured back in the Half Men the episode the week before. They may be nearly five million years old, but they fit in the established evolutionary line, so that's one mystery resolved at least, or at least we think it is. However, one line of human evolution does get explored here in the small matter of human males being patronising about the currently absent Barbara Judd, who has taken the morning off. Roni, like an idiot, assumes it's to have her hair done, and now he can't find any of his notes. And remember, it was Roni who leapt to her defence earlier in the episode. Luckily, his damn that girl nonsense is interrupted by a phone call from an actual idiot, one Colonel Breen, who is even now back at the pit lowering the surface level by several feet with mechanical diggers and in the process destroying all the careful archaeological work that ought to have been done. Roni is of course aghast at this, but Quatermass is more concerned about other matters. At his insistence, Breen also, rather dismissively, reads him the results of the radiation tests they did and announces that they are clearly absurd as they suggest that the radioactivity is artificial, man-made if you will, but we will soon discover perhaps not, from some lost nuclear reactor unit which would have to be five million years old. Breen latches onto that word absurd like a security blanket whilst Quatermass is left to ponder. We are again transported back to the Hobbs Lane site where the magnificent missile is now fully exposed. It must have been shot on film because even though there is talk of the set designers building the set ever deeper as the weeks progress, this sequence appears in the same episode as the sequence earlier when the sergeant is feeling around inside the missile and finding the skull. So it's unlikely, though not impossible, that the two versions of the set could have been dressed for live transmission. Anyway, with its body all studded and that circular hatchway opening and the mysterious bulbous sealed compartment, it is, in many ways, a very 1950s idea of what a spaceship buried for five million years might look like. But it's also instantly iconic, in a way that the Hammer film version a decade later doesn't quite manage. And of course, there's so much about it that reminds you of another iconic science fiction design that's only five years from being brought into being in another BBC serial, which will assume some significance, uh, but it's probably best not to go there just yet. Roni is furious, of course, as the bomb disposal team use hoses to turn the site into a sea of sticky, wet mud. But Quatermass is more fascinated at the structure that's been revealed, and for a moment, as he grabs handfuls of the mud all around him, the language turns full colour as the greens and reds streaking throughout it suggest the decay of some ancient propulsion mechanism of a similar vintage to those absurd radiation test results. Breen is, of course, 
more than sceptical about that, but we are saved from witnessing further argument as the camera favours a couple of sappers taking a break. They are the ubiquitous Harold Goodwin as Corporal Gibson and his nervy pal Sapper West, played by John Walker, and who is someone to keep an eye on as he's about to suddenly move very much to the middle of the action. For the moment, however, they are happy to notice just how stumped these bigwigs appear to be, although their high spirits are brought down with a bump or a bang as the loud tap of a hammer reminds them just how dangerous an unexploded bomb can be. It's a sight gag, and just as it needs to, it breaks the tension for just a moment. Or causes the nation to jump again. It's hard to imagine the tension that might have been wrought upon first transmission, but it certainly made an impression. As Roney tries to salvage what he can, that girl, Barbara Judd, returns and seems rightly startled by the transformation the military mind has wrought upon their fossil dig. Despite Roney's protestations that they need to get on with things, she's rather eager to talk to the professor, and so he joins them. Instead of having her hair done, Barbara has been off doing some research to help out old Bernard in her own time, and she produces a large sheaf of photocopies of her researches taken from the archives. So we at Round the Archives like her a little bit more already. Reading through those various headlines she has bought for him, all full of tales of spooks and ghosts, Quatermass comes across as a really ungrateful so-and-so as he remembers the strange spiritualist world inhabited by Miss Groom and the Chilcots the previous evening. Barbara is quite naturally rather affronted at his dismissive response to all of her efforts, especially as she was only trying to help the old sod because he seemed curious. Won't be doing that again, she muttered under her breath, I'm sure, and even his distracted, half-hearted, my fault, really does little to endear him at this point. When you think Think about the lot of women in the, working in the scientific world and their struggle to get recognition and credibility in the big boys club. That it can be even now, this exchange seems significant, especially with regard to Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin in the early part of that very decade that the Quatermass serials were produced in. I don't necessarily think that this is an example of Neil's famed prescience, of course, but it does make for an interesting exchange in hindsight. However, as she returns to her day job of measuring stuff for Dr Matthew Roney, which is unlikely to be a job for life, I fear, one of the other news newspaper headlines that she has gathered together catches Quatermass's eye and there is mention of a tube line extension that was taking place about the same time as the supposed manifestations which seems to excite him. Now of course a new tube extension would become the main reason for the excavations at another version of Hobbs Lane made in another medium about a decade later, a time perhaps when the amount of post-war reconstruction and development might appear to be less of a reason to dig deeply into the earth below the centre of London. Obviously there were those of us who watched the documentaries about the engineering of the Crossrail project in recent years who still crossed our fingers and hoped ever so slightly for them to come across something strange and unusual buried deep beneath the earth. A hubbub sort of erupts, but less so in the close-ups, as, having moved inside the newly uncovered whatever it is, it has become apparent that there is a sealed compartment at one end of the vessel behind a solid bulkhead that cannot be accounted for. Once again, this could be explosives or a warhead or anything according to the army, but these scenes make the most of the mystery being once again all deep shadows and bright, swinging torch beams catching the bright white surfaces of the thing in the pit and the remains of the dark black mud that once entombed it. Breen is convinced that this proves that it must have been some kind of experimental V-weapon from the latter days of the Second World War, and for a moment even Quatermass seems prepared to concede the point as Breen sets about getting this particular nut cracked. More water is required to clean it out, and uh-oh, a pump is brought over by Gibson and West to help clear it out again as it pools in the bottom of the glass-like surfaces they have to walk on. The luckless Sapper West is dispatched into the wondrous bowels of the missile, and we get that first multifaceted view along the length of its interior, all round circles embedded in walls like the gleaming white interior of some future time machine. 
probably. As the walls of the bulkhead are washed down, some markings are discovered, and because they have a handy archaeologist on hand to identify such things, they are quickly identified as ancient Kabbalistic symbols, a pentangle of the sort associated with ancient magic. Creep in the sinister music, and in all probability a few streets away, they're now all but forgotten, presumably. Miss Groom gets a funny feeling that she's been right about everything all along. And as the professor is helped outside, from the slippery as glass surface, a line that does much to emphasise its alien qualities, there is a scream from it within the vessel, and we cut to the suddenly terrified-looking figure of Sapper West, cowering in fear in the deep, dark shadows and harsh torchlight. He has seen something, something diabolical. Like poor old Earnshaw, thirty years earlier, Sapper West has seen a figure, and it went through the wall. Our sceptic scientist can only look on agog as the titles crash in and an entire nation has to wait a week to find out, possibly, just what the figure he saw actually was, for we, the viewers, have seen nothing other than the ghosts of our own imaginations, and what an exhaustingly brilliant episode two that makes. Again, it's difficult to get across the brilliance of that sense of creeping menace that Nigel Neal manages to build using little but carefully chosen words and all enhanced by the clever use of light and shadow and sound and ideas. To be honest, despite that devastatingly effective final scene, both these episodes have little that might be described as action-packed in the modern sense going on. An excavation, a couple of encounters with ordinary gullible people, and a bit of debate. Yet once again, the slow building of questions needing answers and the growing sense of unease and fear is masterfully done in a 36-minute slice of probably one of the best six-part television serials ever produced. And I love it even more every time I watch it. Thank you to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Will we do part three? I'm sure we will. Right. Now, Ben Baker mm-hmm. is famous for the Don't Let's Chart podcast, he of is. course, which is well worth a listen. Yes, it's a lovely podcast. But he's also got a new book out, hasn't he? Has, he has, yes. So let's cross over to his house and see mm-hmm. what's happening. Okay. Oh, pause. Brilliant. Dear Mr Baker, you have been cordially invited back onto Round the Archives. Oh, that's nice of them. I wonder what they want me to talk about. Um, oh, I know, I could talk about an obscure 1960s science fiction serial, Quartermiss and the Bum. Oh, Doctor, why have the ill-defined alien species created a giant bum? I don't know, and I don't care for their cheek. It really is below the belt. How didn't we catch wind of this sooner? Oh, so sorry, so sorry. Wait, no, sorry. They already did that one in episode eight. Well, all right. How about boring educational nineteen seventies kids program? Why are you? Hello, I am Boy Seven, and welcome to the gang from Sunderland. Today. We're going to show you how to make a key from some toilet rolls and a drawing of missing dad. But first, here's boy nine with a helpful tip from us. We hope brings please your... Oh, no, man, she's back! Oh, well, that'll do... What? Oh, bugger, they did that in episode 26. Right. I've got it. We can't possibly have done the episode where Batman was one of the panellists on Just a Minute. 
Mr. Batman, you have one minute to talk without hesitation or deviation on the topic of parents. No! Ah, perfect. Oh, scared up. Hello? What? Do you mean that was a centrepiece of the Batman versus Round the Archives team up in episode 38? And anyway, the episode theme this month is Christmas, so I should be talking about that. Oh, I give up. I don't know what archive thing to talk about. There's loads of great and terrible Christmas things from the archives. And besides which, everyone knows Christmas was better in the 80s. Oh, wait a minute. That's the title of a book I've just written. variety of entertainment for Christmas with BBC One. Comedy with Little Dick Val Doonigan. Have yourself a merry little... Paul Daniels. Mind you, my landlady gets very confused. Two firemen fought the blaze for over a minute. <laughs> entertainment for Christmas with BBC One. Whether you agree with the blatantly commercial statement of my book's title or not, it's hard to deny the 80s provided the last really big decade for all-out nostalgia. From the last firework exploding on November 5th, every shop, cafe, romance centre and butchers is bouncing with the Yule-based standards from Wham, Shaky, Jonah, Bowie, Bing, The Waitresses, Chris Reary, Cliffy, The Pogsies, and, in some unfortunate cases where they haven't updated their copy of Now the Christmas Album, Gary Glitter. Elsewhere, the debates raged over the best toy of the decade, and it was a decade that gave us the Rubik's Snake, Cabbage Patch Kids, the Viewmaster, Boglins, and whatever the buggery hell Rock Lords are meant to be. And that's before we even get onto whether Die Hard is a Christmas film. It is. Or whether your mate definitely saw the bit where the gremlin cut the woman's head off and threw it down the stairs and a pirate tape their uncle got off the market. They didn't. But more importantly for me and my book, Christmas in the 80s in the UK truly meant telly. Lots of telly. Proper telly. With actual budgets. When the big film was really the big film. And there were celebrity versions of every format you could cram a Tim Brook Taylor into. Unique Christmas versions of the usual channel logos that wouldn't show up until the 23rd of December. And stupidly high ratings for everything from the Midnight Weather Report to Basil Brush's Boxing Day Punch-Up. <laughs> In my book, you'll find a mix of the big names next left forgotten or never was. Obscure oddities that made up the 1980s TV schedules that give a proper flavour of how telly actually used to be and hopefully free of the cliches and obvious choices that someone on Channel 5's Top 100 here, do you remember this, mams, would go for. I think the best thing for me, whilst doing this book from 80 to 89, is tracking how telly progressed in the 80s, as it begins with telly rarely getting out of bed before lunchtime, and then going for a quick nap after Postman Pat. But by the end of the decade, you've got 4th Channel, Breakfast TV, Daytime TV, and then All Night TV. And even if you're out, you could video it on one of them video recordery type things. Ah, more TV than ever before. And soon they might come and stick with them bloody dish things on your home. Thousands of channels. But that's a tale for another decade. So, was Christmas really better in the 80s? 
visit benbakerbooks.org, grab my new book, and decide for yourself. Thank you, Jerry, for this is wonderful. Um, great honour for me and for Australians. Jerry, before you saw Neighbours, did you realise there was such talent in Australia? Clive, before I saw Neighbours, I didn't realise there was an Australia. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, studio audience, and everyone at home. Thank you for staying with us for ten years. Back to you, Lisa and Andrew. Thank you to Ben. Thank you, Ben. Yes, a very interesting book. Well, it hasn't arrived yet. Well, it will be a very interesting book. <laughs> I was <laughs> pretending. <laughs> We're waiting for our copy. Yes. Which, of course, we've ordered. Yes. Right. Only one more thing mm-hmm. officially on this episode. Yes. But we do have a, a post-credits yes, thing so, as well. So stay on after the end theme. But now Warren joins us on the sofa again mm-hmm. for a bit of Rent-A-Ghost, yes. better known as... Rent-A-Santa. Good evening, Warren. <laughs> Good evening, Lisa. Good, Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, Warren. Good evening, Andrew. How do you feel? I've just shown you rent a Santa. Hollow. <laughs> there is a phrase, isn't there? As camp as Christmas. Mm. Yes, and there's none camper than that. <laughs> yes, it was. Very so camp. Much, so much frolics on show, wasn't there? Yeah, festive frolics galore. Mm-hmm. And yes, do you uh, remember seeing this in yeah. 1979? Yes, I do. And seeing it as a grown-up <laughs> brings a whole new aspect onto it. Well, this was originally meant to be shown in December 78, but uh, BBC strikes and things like that. Um, it, I think it was made, but um, just had to sit on the shelf because mm. it was a Christmas episode. Oh, so it's vintage. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How, well, we just have to go through it, don't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we start with a rendition of Jingle Bells yes. by the ghosts yes. who are floating around the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, nearly, and, I nearly said orifice. but yeah. And then they, they come down and they do a sort of bit of dancing with some tinsel, don't they? And there's lots of ducking under yeah. The tinsel yeah, and, and skipping, and skipping and stepping over it. But we're we're getting uh, the CSO being yes, used, yeah. aren't we? It's it's almost um, a big showreel. You expect the set to fall away, don't you? And there'd be this huge, great sort of nineteen thirty set piece behind it with all these multiple dancers, the top hats and canes and things. But the whole thing is is done in in a camp pantomime showbiz way mm-hmm. perhaps even yeah. more so than normal yeah because we showed you an, an interview with jeremy swan where he says well 
I didn't encourage too much acting on no, the show. He you threatened know. to sack them if they acted. Yeah, <laughs> and he just wanted it to move along with and, pace. And those mm-hmm. couple of lines threw the whole history of Rent a Ghost into some perspective. Yeah, for me. And, and I, th- I think just hearing that from him helps mm. you un- to understand what the, what they're aiming for. But we still have the situation that Fred Mumford's parents don't know that he's a ghost. No. Mm. Which is an interesting sort of approach all, all through the early years of the, of the show. And it's, it's quite dark territory when you think about yeah. it, really. That mm. He's sort of it's still interacting with them. but And, you know, he, he's, he's, essentially he's never come out of the closet as a ghost, has he? Mm-hmm. So, so there's almost a bit of subtext there. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know how seriously you want to take some of this. but Yeah, I think because the idea was that he fell off a ferry or something yeah. and his Did body's he? never been found, oh, yeah. never knew which that. is why they don't know yeah. he's dead. No, I, I always... I always got that as a child that he was dead, he was a ghost, etc. And he was frightened to tell his parents or let heartbreak his parents. But I didn't know it's because he fell off a ferry. I yeah. think so. Yeah. I think that's in yeah. the first in the first episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the postman comes with the Christmas cards, and Mr. Claypole. I think is, that was a lovely play. Well, has sent everybody it, yeah. a playing card. So yeah. the Seven of Hearts or the Joker, and as he says proudly, pointing at it, that's me. You know. Mm. And you know that that is his role here to yeah. to be a sort of mischievous sort of spirit, well, he's, isn't he's he? He's a sprite, isn't he? Yeah, so. but he doesn't. He's not. He's part of an ensemble. Whereas, as the years go on, he seems to sort of encapsulate the whole program. Doesn't yeah, he? I mean, I th- I think the original three characters balance each other out very Absolutely, well. Yeah. And as we always say, with things like, "Are you being served?" That initial setup of characters. Once you start fiddling with it. It, it, it's hard to establish something new for long-term viewers because they always yep. think back to how, how it was. The equilibrium, is yeah. ju- if you change that, then the bubble... And there are people yep. for, for whom, after this episode, you know, that it, it goes downhill. But I, I don't necessarily be- believe that. It's no. a different way of doing it. Perhaps it's, for me, it does, mm. because the blasted horse arrives. Yeah. But it, it, it takes it on to a different level, doesn't it? But I didn't really buy into the next yeah. level. I didn't appreciate it. Perhaps. But there are a few of the later episodes knocking around, and we've watched them, and we've just mm. very much enjoyed them. Yeah, I think if you don't, don't worry about it, yeah. then... Well, the later ones are my era anyway, yeah. so they're the ones I remember. So they're the oh, ones I'm very fond you. of. But I mean, obviously, you have the problem that Michael Derbyshire dies after he's filmed not this live one. Live on set. Not live on yeah. set, no. So you can't have the original set three anyway, yeah. so... But you've got the lights on the Christmas tree joke that whenever the telephone rings, the Christmas tree, you said you'd like that set up in your house, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I'd ring myself permanently. (laughs) But yeah. um, I'll ring my neck, one of the two. But enter the war chief. Oh. Edward Brayshaw. And. (laughs) I know who you are. (laughs) Warren, what do you think of Edward Brayshaw in this? Yeah. Because um, he's fantastic as the war chief. I took him seriously in the war games. Yeah. And I look at him now and I go, there's so much versatility there. And he's, yeah. he is very underrated. I know some people have always described him as an archetypal Doctor Who pantomime villain. Yeah. No, not <laughs> until he plays this part. Yeah. All of a sudden, oh, this is this is really weird. Mr. Claypole produces an enormous sausage... <laughs> Waves it in the face, but it's the way it's grasped of Mr. Davenport, and said, and says, "Hold this and pull." And the I think we, 
<laughs> the so excuse for it is that people pull bangers, bangers at Christmas. But dearie me, this, you know, I say there's a subtext to this, but a lot of the time it's not very sub, is no, it? No, no subtext. It's, it's not hidden at all. And in this case, it wasn't even dressed up. What's going on? And uh, having, having pulled this... Did you think it was a large banger? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a large banger, yes. Having pulled this sausage, Mr <laughs> Davenport then turns into a fairy, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> he does. Well, yes, exactly. If you start working it out, and he ends up on the Christmas tree. So he's tugging he? on a large sausage yeah. and turns into a fairy. But it worried me how he attached it. Did you see how he reacted? Did he get a bit did he get a branch up his kyber? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, just looking back on this as an adult, it's, it's fantastically clever. Yes, mm. absolutely. And I, I just wonder how many adults watching at the time, you know, got the whole sort of different levels that yeah. Bob Block is writing at. And, and I think I think it's brilliant. So you know, it, I, it's only, you it's can only, imagine Bob chuckling yeah. as this, he's this, writing. This it. is absolutely distilled Bob Block. You yeah. know, if, if you if you ever want to do. Bob Block. This is the forty minutes to do. I think so. So so brilliant. So, enter the Mumfords, and Mister Mumford is just so wonderfully deadpan and straight. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. He is and sarcastic. He yeah. is, he's mm. just not having any nonsense, is he? Mm. Uh, he he's he's the uh, grumpy relative, isn't he? Yeah, that appears at Christmas. That you can never get to smile and join in with the games. I mean, there's some awful jokes in here about, you know, why does the Christmas tree light up? Perhaps it's a trunk call and things, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but, but he notices the funny looking fairy. The phone goes and there's a gabbly voice on the end. And it is that thing you only get in sort of kids shows, oh, isn't yes, it? The, the speeded up squeakly voice. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you you you, ne- you never hear the phone going and the silly voice going on at the other end any- no. anywhere else, do you? Th- this is all about the production of Aladdin, isn't yes, it? Yes, because the uh, the Meekers are doing a pantomime, aren't they? Yeah, Mrs. Meeker's Aladdin. Yeah, but um, Mister, but Mister Meeker comes in, <laughs> and Mister Davenport <laughs> stops being a fairy, doesn't he? Yes. Although he sort of rubs his eyes and thought he saw an ugly big fairy for a second. <laughs> but they've got a, a scheme going Rent-A-Santa, basically, mm-hmm. um, where the ghosts are, are hired out to be Santa's. Santa Clauses. Standing in for him when he's busy. Yeah. Yes. I noticed that, yeah, it's a nice line to cover it yep. for the, yeah. you know, the real Santa. Yeah. You got excited over the carpet sweeper, didn't you, Warren? Wow, I haven't seen a carpet sweeper in years. Yeah. So they they practice their. Did they actually have any carpet? It was just no, solid it's, it's floor, just a solid floor. No, you could. You, you used to do lino, didn't you? There were two yeah. settings okay. on a carpet cleaner. Yeah. You had a big knob that you turned, and there was one with. I'm sure there for, would have been one here. There was there was one for the carpet, and then you twist it round, and it would do your lino, because the, the brush would well, go up I and never. down. Well, ours did. Well, Perhaps you didn't have a. We didn't have lino. We had a. Actually, no. We might have. No, we had a bit. No, we had lino in the kitchen. Okay, but they they practice their their jingle to advertise the renter Santa business. You said it's really bad overdubbing, isn't it? Yeah, it it outdoes radio goodies by a mile. But you you get you get in store jingles, don't you, Lisa? Yes, at Christmas. We get no. Yes, we've had them at Christmas. They introduced them about. couple of months ago but we've got christmas ones at the moment yeah um and they come down our meat counter no it's it's all about travel and money and stuff like that sausage. what well, travel money apparently makes a good present 
But we, <laughs> but we get to see some of the panto being rehearsed, don't mm-hmm. we? You, you said about uh, dreadful acting from... Well, it's dreadful acting from Mr. Meeker, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. So, yeah. And we've seen Mrs. Meeker... Actually, live on stage. Anne Emery oh, yes. in yes. Hard Times. Dick Emery's sister. But she was in Hard Times with Brian Blessed... And Roy Hurd. And Roy Hurd. And who, a camel. Who kept trying to make each other laugh. Yes. Yeah. Very but we've also got Marjorie in this one. Yes. She's the sort of um, princess. She? Yeah, she's, she's the pr- princess, principal girl. Yeah, because yeah. Anne Emery's yeah. as Mrs. Meeker is playing Aladdin, Aladdin yeah. yeah, and she's pl- playing it real sort of you know yes. legs wide apart yes. acting, isn't it? Yes. You know, it's yes. it's big wide gestures. Yes. And yeah, hello, boys and, and girls. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to say, <laughs> very girl done. That. <laughs> When's the last time you went to a panto, Warren? very long time what Watford was the last time I went to the Panto I must have been about 12 all right oh god we, we've been a bit more recently yes. than that when's the night? we've uh, been for a few years no, haven't we? But... no we thought we talked about going to see Colin Baker when he was down this way but yeah. we never got there um I don't remember the last time we, we certainly went in the 90s didn't we we did it might have been that time when what was we, the one we, we saw with Bonnie we didn't Bonnie? see it with Bonnie. Well, no, but Bonnie, Bonnie was, there. was in it. She was Dick <laughs> Whittington. Where Paul fell asleep. Yeah, Paul fell asleep. Bless him. Oh, bless I don't know him. how he could fall asleep in a pantomime, but yeah. Especially with Bonnie. Yeah, in. it was Dick Whittington because I think Sylvester was in it as King Rat. Yeah. Because he played um, Jailhouse Rock on the Spoons. Yeah. But. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Um, but and uh, we also saw Brian Blessed in a panto, didn't we? Oh, right. Peter Pan. I'd love to see Brian Blessed yeah. in anything. He was he was Captain Hook in Peter Pan, and oh, he he split his trousers. Yeah, he acted so hard, he he, he split his trousers. Yeah, yeah, but he didn't even do that quietly. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> his next line was, "What is it? Out with it, Smee!" <laughs> and nobody could speak for about two he's minutes. He's just giggling for about two <laughs> minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, Mr. Claypole's going to play the genie, isn't he? Mm. Um, the, well, they need somebody to play the genie, and Mr. Claypole wants to the play the genie. The genie of the lamp. Yes. So all the ghosts change into, well, genie costumes of sorts. You yeah. Yeah. Another, there there was a lot of bare chests on display yes. here, weren't there? Too many bare chests. Yes, it's just... Oh, God. <laughs> With fezzes on. I always yes. thought it was going to go to a, a rendition of Village People's YMCA at one point. <laughs> the, the Mr Davenport um, shows us his Dick Whittington. At, yeah, at, he starts at out as Dick yes. Whittington and has to go and change us and, into the genie costume. Yeah. So, yeah. But they're all. Um, where's this, where are the costumes nicked from? Well, not not, not, not yet. yet. That's, oh, later that's, that's later on. That's later on. Yes, it's full costume. Yep. But Mr. Claypole go, goes inside the lamp, mm-hmm. and I said, I said, shades of planet of giants at this hey. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they, they shove a load of shaving foam in there. Yeah, because <laughs> he's he says he's the only one who's got enough psychic energy and enough skill yeah. to go in the lamp and come out of the lamp. But when he puts the other two in, the lamp is empty. Yeah. Mm. yeah so the shaving foam's dispersed. Oh, yay. Yeah. <laughs> so Claypole's cast as the genie and the other two can play the pantomime horse. Yes. And you went, oh, God, at this point. <laughs> now, I like Dobbin. Yeah. Uh, well, I like Dobbin, probably in a sandwich. But I don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll get to him in a second as he's not actually in it yet. But mm. yeah, um, We should mention at this point Tim Worthington, mm. um, who, who's done stuff for us. He's written a very good blog entry on, on this episode. So mm-hmm. if you... Go over to Tim Worthington's uh, website and, yeah. and just search for Rent-a-Santa. for Renta Santa. Um, he, he goes through it in in real detail. And he's got loads of pictures of it Brilliant. there as well. So 
look there. It is a work of art. It mm. is a mm. work of art. It's a Christmas pantomime. Yeah. They still do Christmas pantomimes now, but they do it on the CBBS channel. Yeah, okay. So... But Which is why you don't see them. Yes. Uh, but I just don't think there is the mainstream. Um, but but that, I mean, this is this is a good example be. of the of the. It's it's a slight casualty when you put children's programs onto a dedicated children's channel. Mm. Yeah. Because the beauty of the schedule in 1979 is this immediately leads into the news. Yeah. So. You know, that's the end of children's programmes for today. Now it's the, the news. So the adults will watch this as well. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's the thing. Which is why you, you've, you've got jokes working for the kids and jokes working for the adults, you know, who, who pick up on, 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 on... Some of the jokes. On, on some, of the, some of the more near-the-knuckle stuff. Yeah, then I put Biggins Klaxon. Yay, Yay. Biggins. As Love Chris- a bit of Biggins. I'll have a slice of Biggins. Yeah. As Christopher Biggins, as Adam Painting, head of mm. the local department store. He's a stable, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. He, he's after some Father Christmases, mm-hmm. isn't he? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> With large packages. He, he'd, he'd like a trio of them, if possible. Yeah. Seen that film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Meeker is made to live the part of, a, of Aladdin. Yes, because Mr. Meeker says that uh, our acting's not very good. Yeah. So. And the Mumfords call round. Oh. And then you get this whole routine in the living yeah. room you know, yeah. where where she is literally. I like the way she tries to neck down the glass of wine. <laughs> and it misses. One, misses. It sort of goes everywhere. You, but... you find out that they live in South Ealing as well at yeah. this point as well. But I, like, I always like the fact that, again, this is another sort of Jeremy Block. Jeremy Block? Jeremy Bock. Bock. <laughs> Bock. <laughs> Bob Block. <laughs> Staple. Put your tongue away, Warren. <laughs> um, of Mr. people Sausage. misunderstanding other people. Yeah. So Mr. Claypole has, has done this spell, but he's done it for the best of intentions. Yeah, absolutely. But he's made a he's mistake. He's taking something literal, yes. hasn't he? Yeah. Yes. Because he's a medieval ghost and, and that- he takes what you say... Absolutely. Literally. And I'd noticed throughout that, it is, every time he eavesdrops a conversation, everything is in the sense of reality to him. Yeah. So I want them to live it. Ping. Mm. I want the horse to be alive. Ping. Yeah. That's the thing. He's always trying to be helpful. Yeah. He's not He's not being malign or anything no, no, like no. that. No, but he can't see the, the error of his ways sometimes or the mm. calamity it can cause. He's trying mm. to do what people, what he thinks people yeah. want, want him because to do. Because he's the gesture. Yeah. He's bringing yeah. in happiness. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he's being mischievous, but you oh, know. Yeah. So we've got the whole, we've got the whole. Oh <laughs> yes, says, oh yeah, oh no, we don't. Oh yes, we do. Stuff yeah, behind yes. you. Oh no, that. you don't. Oh no, you don't. Mm. And there's even some some words on the wall for a song, <laughs> oh, which oh, come yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, how big? Because Mister Meeker writes the address down of the department store. How big does he write it? Because <laughs> it's like it's like sort of poster sized almost, isn't it? A small poster. <laughs> it is. So. <laughs> Should have unfurled. Yeah, it? pulled it down. With a little pointy stick. Yes. <laughs> oh, we're getting into it now. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to uh, Adam Painting's department store, where I, I, you just said, seedy Santa. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was this really seedy Santa. Because Fred Mumford... <laughs> he's dressed um, as Santa. He's dressed as Santa. He said he's got really dirty, off-white fur, hasn't mm. he? His beard is, is white. Mm. But the rest of him is really grimy, isn't but it? I expect him at lunchtime to have a tab on the go and <laughs> half a bottle of scotch. That... The kids look quite scared that they're yeah. Yeah, well. I, I just... Which is traditional. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because you're suddenly thrust upon this 
Stranger. Stranger's knee. Yes. Yeah. Who asks you what you want and, and you're if like, you've been good or bad. Yeah, who the hell are you? Yeah. That's the thing. Now, now Warren, memories mm-hmm. of visiting a store Santa? Yes. Do you, do you have Be- any? Beale's department store in Bournemouth. Right. Going to, uh, terrified. Um, I think I was nine. And you had to sit on this mock sleigh being pulled by invisible reindeer. And so you'd hear the chingly bells going, and the thing would just sort of vibrate. And um, <laughs> <laughs> what about the sleigh? Oh, hey, and the sides would move along to give the impression of movement. It was so laugh. But I was terrified. I was the only bleeding person on this sleigh. And then it stops, and this door opens at the front, which makes no logical sense whatsoever. Where the reindeer gone? And there's this. Voices says, won't you step this way? And I think, sod off, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you walk down this sort of dark um, archway with twinkly Christmas lights going, oh, God. So you're edging yourself around the walls because it's safer. <laughs> and sat at the end in this great, like, ice cavern type thing is this bloke with a dodgy beard. Hello, what do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hello, what's your name? whatever you want it to be and um, <laughs> with this sort of really limp looking sack <laughs> <laughs> so did you have a rummage with this sack <laughs> and I, gr- I grasped the nearest thing I could and give it tug to get it out <laughs> what was it can you remember what I it don't was? know but it felt strange <laughs> <laughs> started and he was taken away (laughs) but I think somewhere (laughs) trying to get back onto a more level subject I think my (laughs) parents had um, a picture of my nieces sat on Father Christmas's lap and they both looked terrified and Santa just looks really really fed up (laughs) did did you did you ever settle yourself on his knee no I can't remember I blocked it out (laughs) can you point on this doll (laughs) So, <laughs> oh, the trauma that people put their kids through that they never forget for the rest of their lives. So they're going to take the sleigh. Mm-hmm. I've got a football. And fly it over. That's what I got. A flat football. You have to, you have it, to inflate it, it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No pump. <laughs> so the sleigh is flown about by the miracle of CSO. Yes, because they've got to deliver mm-hmm. presents for Mr. Painting. Yeah. We should yeah. say that, otherwise yeah. people are going to be confused. But they've got no reindeer. The reindeer are on a stag party. Yeah, and now we just get big in singing, don't mm-hmm. we? About Santa Claus is coming to town. Yes. <laughs> and suddenly we're like in the middle of TV centre studio, whatever. Yeah, light entertainment. Yeah, with some podiums. Yeah. And I was expecting them to be dancing around the fountain next, aren't yeah. you, outside? <laughs> and you, I, I just put in, in big letters... You know, ca- Camp Claxon Factor 10, because it really is. <laughs> and Biggins is, is loving it, isn't oh, he? Oh, he, he is. In his, he's, he's in his, his element. element. Yeah. 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 And we, the ending of it is spectacular, as we mm. go into full jazz yeah. hands oh. mode, and yeah. oh, yeah! <laughs> and your face at this point <laughs> was, was an absolute picture. I, I, I was amused, shocked, and... Stunned? Yeah. Stunned. I was, uh, yeah, very stunned. And it's a great shame we don't see shows like this <laughs> yes. anymore. So the horse costume, there's nobody to fill it mm. because 
They're all on Santa duty. So it's given a life of its own by a spell from Mr. Claypole. Mm. And it immediately likes Ethel. Mm. Have a nibble. Cut back to the sleigh. And you notice they were reading the A to Z of London book (laughs) to find their way around. And you said, houses with chimneys. Yes. And again, this is a real-time capsule thing now, isn't it? Mm. I have a house with a chimney. Well, we don't. Uh, and, and <laughs> you got no flu. We've, I haven't got a flu. You haven't stung uh, your pole up to no, get it clean indeed, for a while? No. Oh. Did, you, you, did you have a chimney? No. I used I to have a chimney. I must have had a chimney, yes, because they had an open fire before. Yes, mm. I probably did. I don't know, I've never really looked at the roof of my Oh, you never looked at the roof of your house. Oh, you didn't come out of Christmas to see their new prints up there. You didn't, no, you didn't get three, set up there on the ladder. No, yeah. didn't have to climb up a chimney. But there is a chimney sweep at work as, as, a, as a big, oh, a big Christmas hairy Eve. brush comes out yeah. the top, doesn't yeah. it? So he must be on I don't double think it time. Is Christmas Eve? Is it? No, uh, I think it's, well, it's just a lead up to. Yeah. And then Mr. Davenport's arse is on fire, isn't it? Because <laughs> he goes down the <laughs> chimney and, and there's a fire in the grate. Yeah. I mean, how did he not think the people inside would be terrified by a man suddenly appearing in the grate? Yeah. Coming down there, flu. Yeah. There's, there's a cat on the roof, briefly. Yeah, like that's one. sweet. It yeah. doesn't hang about, no. though. It's not really keen on it. You look Martha. I liked sort of. a little um, ghost of a uh, Victorian child as he goes down the flue. <laughs> and Michael Staniforth starts swinging on the star yes. for no readily apparent reason. Um, Bing... I was worried that that was going to snap. You said I think it was quite securely. Yeah. Bing, Co- Bing Cosby, Bing Crosby, Cosby. and Perry Cosby. Perry Como. Perry Como. Perry Como. Yeah. Where they get the monkey masks from at some point? Because there's an insert shot yeah, of them with monkey, monkey masks on. Mm. And suddenly there's applause mm. coming yes. from nowhere. And I just mm. wrote three question marks after that. I wouldn't kiss you under chloroform is a great line. <laughs> That's what my chat up line Yeah, because yeah, Mr. Mika puts some uh, mistletoe up, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. Um, the horse is now at home, yes. oh, sitting on a chair oh. and eating at the table. <laughs> the Mumfords come round. It has a nibble on Mrs. Mumford's fruit, fruit on her hat. Yeah. Likes a bit of grape. I don't think it's for even fresh fruit. It's like, it's like grapey things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You get you get some more you get some more musical <laughs> stuff, um, sleigh bells jingling, and, and they get, they fly past a, a, a captioned photo of Big Ben, <laughs> and do a bit of tap dancing on the roof in their wetty boots. Yeah, the horse is on the bed okay. at the foot of the bed. Yeah, yeah, it's more like a visit from the the, the Cosa Nostra that is, isn't it? I need the horse's head on the bed, <laughs> and you got a nice shot of the horse's dentures as well. You yeah. said. I love the horse's dentures. <laughs> Because it's, it's quite animated, it's, it's mouth diff- flat. It's a different costume. And its ears go. To the, yeah. um, the subsequent dobbing. It was probably just done for the one thing and then they decided to keep it on and had to do a new costume. <laughs> we get more tap dancing at the theatre. Yeah. And you said everyone was really rather good, weren't they? Yeah, they were choreographed really well. It, it, and the horse tries to do the splits at one point and mm. it's advised against it. Yeah. People uh, like Edward Brayshaw... Mm. I don't know what his pedigree for dancing was, but he was the one that I thought wouldn't pull it off. Yeah. But it does. But he got away with it. Yeah. Ethel does a, a very strange song, I've Got a Genial Genie, <laughs> which again comes out of no, nowhere. Mr. Claypole de- demonstrates a levitation effect. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I like Ethel carting in a dirty great bale of hay for the horse, the horse at one point. It's, it's just a, it's, Is it the one they nicked out a python from ba- just outside Basingstoke? Well, yes, possibly. So the horse steps on Widow Twanky's foot or something and breaks yeah, his foot. Breaks his toe. And then mm. the sets suddenly go up in flame, but although yes. we don't see anything. No. Um, That's too expensive. But Adam Painting has got the solution to both yes, their problems. He's got, their furniture, hasn't he? he's got a load of furniture they can have. And he's very keen on filling the vacant slot of Widow Twanky, isn't yeah, he? He wants to fill the Widow Twanky slot, doesn't yeah. he? So, more costumes are broken out, this time nicked from Robots of Death. Yes. yes. It's like the Vok robot. Well, no, Tune- it's the Cruise Tabards. Oh, the Crew ones, yeah. isn't it? Sorry, it's yes. The Cruise Tabards. So the yellow, the green, and... The red one. The red one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, we, we get to see um, Biggins demonstrating his Twanky. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Warren. Did you just say that? Yes. He's got a shopping trolley full of, what is it, sweets and things? The Mumfords are sitting in the royal box in the theatre, aren't they? Which is just to allow them access to the stage later. Yeah. Really. We get a quick blast of Keep Young and Beautiful. I just love Mr Mumford. He's so dry. Mm. And there's an actual audience as well, isn't there? And we said, where did they come from? No children, though. No, no, no. no, no children in the audience. Because they're too awkward to film, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose if they're filming during the day, then yeah. they, they, they have to be at school, don't they? And yeah. things like that. But but it's another good example. Now you said that that a lot of children's programs didn't actually have children in them. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, you know, it was it was very much. And again, it's because of the nature of the production that you know kid actors have got certain hours that mm, they can they work. Yeah. So having a, an all adult. So then, team if makes you it easier to make. children into this, yeah. say, say, forget about the hours thing, but you threw children into it, would it lessen it? or would I it... don't think it would work as well. No, no, no I don't think it would. Because the whole idea that the humour comes from adults being silly, yes. isn't it? No. And if children are silly, it's not as funny. No. no. Yeah. So the, there's a voice spell uh, oh. which... which um, <laughs> Goes wrong. Because they're both losing their voices. So the, Mr. Me- and the Meekers, Mika. yeah, the Meekers' voices so get Mr. swapped around. So Mr. Claypole does a spell to make their voices better, but it just, yeah, it just swaps, swaps them around. around yeah. And a spell to make the Mumfords believe everything that they see. Yes. So we get the whole sort of new lamps for old stuff. Mm. And Mr. Mumford goes off to see a policeman. Mm. And he- there just happens to be a policeman standing outside. Yeah. As you say, there are a lot of handy policemen in Bob Block things, yes, aren't they? Yes. So he says about the crime at the palace. Yeah. So a squad car is going to get sent to the palace. Yeah. Is that how it works? Uh, no. <laughs> but all you hear is a screech of brakes and a As siren. Said, cancel the car. Yeah. It's a hoax. But yeah, Mr. Mumford um, sort of invades the stage, mm-hmm. doesn't he? The main Hence the robots. Word with, Abenaza. He's yes. going to sort of thump him. No, but... it's not Abenaza, it's the Sultan. The Sultan, right, yeah, sorry. He rolls his sleeves yes. up, ready to bop him one, mm. doesn't yeah. he? Um, so things are sort of building up now. And we get a sort of, we get a bit of a rave up ending as everybody mm. starts sort of arguing. Mm. So Mr. Claypole suddenly conjures a real genie. Yes. Don't know where he comes <laughs> from. Who's Roy Stewart, yes. no less. Who, who gets about one line. And then suddenly the policeman's whistle goes off and it's all over. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's all, it. folks. Yeah, and everybody all. does a walk down on the stage, yeah. you know, walk, walk up to the camera position, take mm. a bow, your name comes up on screen, and Mr. Mumford makes no effort. No effort. Yeah. He just sort of shuffles on. And nods a bit. In total character. Yeah. 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 
But there you are, Warren. There is your viewing of Renta Santa. Mm. That was a whistle top. Don't need to go to a panto this year. Yeah, Christmas. That, that's why I wanted to save this yeah. till last. It is, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's beautiful, mm. isn't and it? And I think mm. I enjoyed it a lot more now than mm. probably I enjoyed it at the time. No, I mm. agree. I agree. I have seen that when it was transmitted. And now yeah. it's, it holds so fran- much frankly, more. Frankly, our dirty minds just put a whole, oh, just whole new, new context spin on it. it. Yes. Yeah. And you can't deny that some of it is, you know, intentional. Yes. Absolutely. Sausage. Yeah. So brilliant, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there we are. Yes. And that, apart from an end credits thing that I'm going to put on after the credits, mm-hmm. <laughs> which will be a quick review of the year. Well, that, quickish. Quickish review, yeah. <laughs> that is it's the end of Round the Archives for this year. For 2019. So, thank you everybody for yes. listening. Thank you, Warren, for, no, thank you for joining us on the sofa off. so no, often. Thank you. Um, we'll, thank you to everyone who's helped. And listened. And listened. And we'll see you in 2020. So, all we can say is, Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas Happy Christmas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. was episode 43 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Warren Cummings, Simon Exton, Ken Moss, Paul Chandler, Nick Goodman and Ben Baker. On the musical side you had Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Renter Santa was by Bob Block. And the producer was Jeremy Swan. Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. And good afternoon, Martin. Yes, good afternoon, good afternoon Martin. <laughs> You're on the end of a connection, aren't you? I am. You a long are. way away. <laughs> yes. So let us cast our minds back to episode 31. <laughs> episode 31, start of the year. Yeah. Start of the year. You uh, did a cover involving Blake Seven with all our, nice... our faces sort of looming about behind the Liberator. <laughs> and you talked briefly about the League of Gentlemen. But also Department S. Department S, that, that was interesting because that was the first thing I ever planned to do for you and then, then, then bottled out for a very long time. So, so that was it was a slightly atypical article in the sense it was about the whole series, which I very rarely do. Um, I think it went all right. People liked it. It's a lovely cover. <laughs> well, you sometimes get feedback that we never see because you're in various sort of Facebook groups, aren't you? I get less feedback than you would possibly imagine. <laughs> Actually, I always, I always think I'm, I'm doing this stuff into the void, and and no, and um, uh, I actually don't know whether, I, I, you, you know, that thing where you don't know whether anything you're doing is actually 
hitting the spot with anybody and then suddenly occasionally this thing pops up and you go oh somebody liked that so hooray <laughs> i don't know what i don't know whether i have a fan <laughs> you never know <laughs> i think i think it might be a fan there may be two fans actually but i think i found a second fan this week but uh, <laughs> but there we go but episode 32 um oh. you did poirot should I, I say that? Should I, should I say yes. that again? Yeah, because that didn't sound right. I, didn't I'll say it again. <laughs> Episode thirty-two. You did Poirot. There we are. That yes. sounds better. That's better. Yeah. Mister Mister Andrew. I can't do these accents. You know that. <laughs> but it, it, it's one of those series that I think you know quite well, Lisa. I, I know there are some episodes I've seen quite a lot. I mm. think there are some episodes I've not seen at all. No. And it's ridiculous because I have the entire lot on DVD, yeah. but I will watch it if it's on ITV3. But is it one of those shows you always sort of go go back to, Martin? Or Well, uh, 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 my beloved is a, is a big fan uh, of the Poirot, and uh, we we now actually play, if it come, if, if we're just changing channels of Nina, we play Guess the Poirot. Um I- from from the scene we're we're looking at, and I'm usually very bad at that, especially as they're showing the one hour ones at the moment, and I'm much less familiar with the one hour ones than the two hour ones, so I, I always lose at, at Guess the Poirot, but I'm getting better. Occasionally, occasionally I, I notice one. You know, the the one thing about our box set is the only disc that actually uh, has a flaw on it is the uh, Peter Capaldi episode. <laughs> And I keep thinking, right. I keep thinking, I, 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 I sort of keep thinking, should I just order that set again to replace? Of course, that was when I was, you know, in, in, it had better financial means. But um, I, uh, I, I kind of look at that and I think, oh, it's, it's a shame. That's the, that's the one we can't watch properly. Although obviously it's online and all over the place. Love Poirot. Um, also, uh, Miss Marple, of course. The the BBC Miss Marple. I'm not a huge fan of the ITV one. I think I mentioned that at the time. But uh, but uh, yeah, and of course we only did the the pilot. They only did the opening episode in that article, as as is my wont. And uh, I I kind of think I'd like to go back to it at some point. I'd like to look at one of the two hour ones and, and give that a proper proper going over. You know. Well, absolutely. I mean, we're already thinking about next year, mm-hmm. and people have said, "Well, can we go back to things you've done in the past?" And I always say, "Absolutely." You know, regard us as a as a podcast that could do a whole year on one series if we really wanted to. So there's no reason why why we can't return to things. So absolutely, yes. Thirty three, uh, Doctor Who companions. Yeah, I'm not in that one much. <laughs> You're not in that one much, but you, you took an interesting approach because, again, you looked at a, a publication that I don't have in my collection, and. Only after a bit of searching was I able able to find it. So, so nineteen seventy. It's on the Dwas site, isn't it now? Y- yes. uh, as, a, as a PDF, you can yes. get get it as a PDF now. But yeah, nineteen seventy seven is prehistory for me when it comes to the Dwas. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm always interested in knowing what happened before nineteen eighty four. Well, I might return to that I, again. It's it's all this thing. So, uh, we're, we're talking about. <laughs> Oh, can I can I be exciting? We're, we're talking about uh, me maybe attempting my own podcasting efforts, and one of the things we're talking about is all that stuff you've got lying around the house. Maybe you could talk about the the objects you find. So it might it might actually start to be uh, something I, I do come back to. There are there's there's a nice folder there with lots of sort of old very old Dwad stuff. The only the only interesting well not the only the only difficult thing 
really is doing um, an audio thing about a visual thing, if you see what I mean. Yes. I think I've tried that for some other things that I don't think we've actually used yet, but uh, it, it's 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 not as easy as you'd think. It's a bit like Test Match Special, really. <laughs> well, it's ventriloquism on the radio, isn't it? Yes. Uh, try to imagine this lovely image that I, I'm explaining to you. <laughs> But I think you got away with it. It was it was just an interesting, different approach. So, mm-hmm. yeah, don't, don't, don't knock it. Yeah, episode thirty-four, uh, Bullman. Bullman, again. It's kind. It's kind of what is what you were saying earlier about um, um, forgetting the article the minute you upload it. I sometimes forget the entire series the minute I've written about it. I mean, I because that Bullman uh, one covered X Y Y Man, Strangers, and Bullman. And thinking back now, it's the first half of the year, and I'm struggling to actually think of any of the episodes at all. You know, I mean, they're on the shelf. I could watch them any time I wanted, but actually trying to think of a specific one. Uh, some very good I, I liked that. I'm hoping in that episode we did a few uh, recommendations uh, of specific very good episodes. And I, that's that's also a very nice uh, approach to take. And I'm hoping that we've we've sort of got some new fans out of that, not for us, but for the show. Well, sometimes... We do hear from people that mm-hmm. say you've done an article on something and it's encouraged me to buy it. Well, unfortunately, that's been my shelves as well, <laughs> as you found out only yesterday. <laughs> but I always regard that as a success for us. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and Don Henderson was such a, a charismatic um, actor, uh, and it's such a charismatic character. Even though I, I, I still dislike X Y Y Man to a certain extent, but the um, the character is is a fascinating character, and 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 it's almost it is it is a shame that they didn't do another series of Bullman. I, I think it, it it had legs. I can't even remember now why they didn't. It could well be that the uh, Paradise Club came along and you know better offer more money. You know, thirty five. Thirty five is Survivors, the Fourth Horseman. Uh, well, I think I think I ch- that that at least seems to have been successful in the sense that it persuaded you to rewatch it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how many have we done? Yeah, we stored again. We? we always stall on yeah. Survivors about two thirds of the way through um, the first we season. We just but... did the the uh, oh the Glen Owen one. The trial one. Yes. The, yeah, yes. yeah. We that's, put that, that off. That can break a lot of people, I think. That one. I mean, we did carry on after that. We got to the Glen Owen one. And I think we stopped after the Glen Owen one. Didn't yeah, because poor old Telf. Yes. Yeah. 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 But then he kind of deserved it. So. <laughs> It's uh, it's a great series. Uh, I mean, I've uh, this year uh, in my commutes, I uh, well, their uh, big finish had a, a sale on their their uh, reimagining of it, and I, I did sort of dive in, and uh, I think I did five series on the trot in the uh, sort of uh, August, September, October this year. Uh, you know, over, oh god, it makes you miserable. They're driving to work, and you <laughs> and you've got. Very yeah, yeah, but but it's 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 a good show, and and it's I mean the radio the audio version is is a good show as well, uh, and it just shows the power of the original uh, idea because I I still think it's a valid idea. The it's another one of those series that suffers slightly from modern technology having kind of overtaken it, in the sense that a lot of the things they could do then we now probably can do even less. In the, you know, we, every, everything's on mobile phones. Which sort of, the minute your mobile phone network collapsed, the whole world will fall apart. 
but the things like the petrol pumps, you know, the manual petrol pumps would have uh, have now been surpassed, really. Uh, you, you, but apart from that, it, it, it's a great it's a great idea for a show, and 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 I, I think in many ways uh, Terry Nation's finest hour or thirteen hours or whatever it was. I'm just looking at the cover that you did for that, and it always makes me grin because <laughs> it's a picture of Julian Clary, <laughs> Queen Victoria, and Abby. And it says "Sticky Vicky Sicky," mm. <laughs> which is which is an awful joke, but I do like it. I think we went through a few uh, variations on that one, but I think we got there in the end. So it's it's nice. Yeah. I mean, I also uh, at that point I was toying with uh, delving into the the nineteen sixties style covers, which uh, I, I have a fondness for as well. Which, of course, is what I also used for the uh, the next one. Yeah. Well, thirty yeah thirty six is Public Eye. Mm. Yeah. Um, Divide and Conquer, which we have seen. Yes. Yeah. And yes. Um, that did encourage us to watch more Public Eye. Yeah. It's such a good episode that one. It, it, it's uh, it, you know having done the run of what was left from that uh, network box, you know the big box of Frank or whatever it was called. The um, that one just really stuck with me. It's it's just so well structured. Of course, it has PC Snow as a as a as a newligan. <laughs> Which is kind of weird, but um, but no, it's 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 just it's a very good. Are, are we uh, I, I did uh, persuade my better half to uh, watch a couple when we were away because uh, when we're on holiday, we can sometimes get talking pictures, and uh, a couple of them were on in the week, and we did at least watch two, you know. So so it wasn't it wasn't like this is rubbish. Let's not watch any more. So I, I think I think that they're very strong. I mean, like a lot of television from that era there are moments that don't you know maybe it's just the cost of the beer or or the attitudes to women or whatever but the, some of them don't hold up but actually in terms of television of that era i think uh, public eye is one of the ones that's actually holds up a lot better than most from its uh should we say more inclusive worldview 37 oh, Hacker. Hacker and Tucker. Uh, yeah martin looks at the first episode of the thick of it which Again, we've we we did we watch it or did yes. we not watch it? No, we did. Wa- I don't know if we watched it at the time, mm. but we have seen it. Yeah, yeah, because we couldn't we, we temporarily th- couldn't find the box set. My theory on it at the time was that it's um it it's kind of one of those shows that quite simply wasn't going to get shown again because of uh, one of the actors, and then it turned up all over uh, iPlayer. So. I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, it is there. Right. Yeah, we, that's where we, we, we got the music from. Oh, did we, player, did we, we couldn't find the, oh, right, the DVD. Okay. But right. I always think, um, I mean, obviously the, the first episode is very good, but I think it's the second episode of that, the scene where I think he's, the character um, is hiding in a cupboard mm. and Malcolm Tucker goes into the cupboard and he's not shouting and he's really reasonable and quiet and it's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I remember seeing it just before it, seeing him take on the part of the Doctor and thinking if he can bring half of this menace to the Doctor he's going to be cracking and yeah. he was 38 38 38 ah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy now I know you've got feedback on that article yeah it seems to have gone down well because yeah. <laughs> you were quite scared of doing it I think weren't you? I, I still maintain that uh, doing COD or say shall we say spoof Adams is never a wise thing to do because it's it's also perfect. I think I got away with it. Um I think I actually do think it's a nice piece of writing myself. But again I can only do that looking at it on reflection 
six months later and then having other people tell me it is because I'm always terribly vague about whether anything I do is worthwhile at all but it, yes it seems to have gone there well again episode one it's another one of those series uh, because only the six exist in, in television form and, and indeed it is limited in, in all its forms uh, you kind of think yeah, I might have another look at that later um, I think the um, episodes five and six almost sit as a separate story and I might no, think about looking at those again because because it is a it is a yeah it's a masterpiece oh the books are a masterpiece uh, the radio series is a masterpiece and i think even the television version in its own way is a masterpiece as well well i i even had the lp versions ah. where you've got the first four episodes as a double lp and then as you say five and six are a separate separate release well, they are separate in the books as well, aren't they? I mean, that's pretty much where the split is on book one and book two. So it kind of, I, I so it, it, it's, it's that, that Doctor Who six-parter thing in the seventies. You know, oh, let's tag on two episodes of something completely different. You know, but yeah, I, I, I was really pleased with what you, what you did with that one, and because as I, as I've said to Warren, I'm always a bit scared of doing Vic Reeves' Big Night Out because it's just trying to get a handle on how you actually tackle the subject matter. Do you try and do it? as a spoof or not of the actual style of it and or do you just do it terribly analytically i don't know but but yeah yeah (laughs) it's possible (laughs) sorry i've just got visions of you doing it as as mary whitehouse (laughs) (laughs) oh i can do voices (laughs) you can edit that out don't worry no no no, i'm leaving it in (laughs) right let's move on to 39 which, uh, which was your major piece for the for the year, and yeah, I, one that I was in the exhausted after that. I've not redone anything proper since. <laughs> but this one was in the planning stages for so long, wasn't it? And you had to do so much watching. Just mm. well, again, there were three series that I I knew but didn't know well, and I thought the only real way to uh, actually properly do them justice is to sit down and watch all whatever it was 100 new episodes of it which of course i did in the early mornings for the first three months of the year more or less we just better say that secret army Colditz and tenko yes uh, in, in that did you actually do them in that order i did yes uh, which right. again isn't in broadcast order but it, it kind of made progressive sense uh in my mind uh just because of um in many ways the christopher neem sort of link uh, back and then you know it, it just made sense to do it in that order I felt in many ways that uh, Secret Army is, is such a strong series and possibly more well known yeah, yeah. and and Colditz has lots of links to it uh, but also Colditz also links forward because it's also a prisoner of war camp so it links forward to Tenko and even now I mean Tenko absolutely blew me away uh, it's it's such a strong series, and and the thing that always surprises me about Tenko is when um, when series like Blake Seven were doing thirteens, you know, there's ten a year, ten, 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 and it's it's an unusual number, you know, and also how they they do tell the story of the end of the war. It's I it's, well, I, I cover all that in the article, but it but it's it it's it's kind of it's succinct, and yet it tells such an epic story, and it's it's a phenomenal piece of television. And I, I did say this when we did the publicity for it. Mm-hmm. I honestly think 39 is the podcast somebody at the BBC should have done. Yeah. 
to mark the start of the second world war and, and i yeah. think you've got a really strong handle on on the three series mm-hmm. to say how good they were and how they do deserve you know to be to be known again mm. that, that, that's the thing yeah. so in, in in sort of sometimes i i sit back and sort of review our sort of who who listens and i've never quite plucked up the courage but we do follow like the head of bbc podcasting <laughs> and just just occasionally in my more drunken moments i think i'll oh, just send him the link <laughs> and 39 39- 39 would have been that. one of the ones I'd have sent him, yeah. I think, I think the other thing is that, that Colditz um, itself has that incredibly strong episode, which they did show was in the 50th anniversary of the BBC, the the one about the man who fakes uh, insanity. Yeah. And that, again, is, is such an incredible hour of television. The problem really is that a lot of these shows just... Uh, they, they're not getting there. I mean, they're, they're buried on ob- obscure channels that, you know, you have to be you have to dig them out. Um, to, to tr- or track them down, but they, you do feel occasionally, you know, the BBC doesn't. Uh, in, in, instead of shutting down BBC Three, they could have just put all this old stuff on it, and you would have had a wonderful time, you know. Well, I think there is a problem that people that make these decisions don't actually know all these series anymore. So. No we're actually doing good work in just getting them out there to people who might not necessarily know. I mean, it's, there's only a few people we can reach like that, but but it's it's important to, you know, to, to, to get this stuff out there, I think. Well, I mean, you know, even uh, even Ben's little uh, jingle, yes, uh, that you sent me, um, you know, it's, it, it, is it that obscure? I, I, I always think I'm talking about series that people don't know about, but I actually think, you know... Why you know it's it's not that you should remake them. I don't think they need remaking. I find I find that with a lot of films as well. But there are some great shows out there, and people deserve to see them. You know, uh, I'm also at the back of my mind is ticking away. We need to do the ITV at war at some point. <laughs> you can't call it the ITV at war, but ITV at war. And um, and I think Enemy at the Door is on my shelf, and World at War I think needs kind of looking at in some way. So I think I think there is enough material to maybe do a follow up at some point. We shall see. Mm-hmm. Episode forty. Ah, nineteen seventy nine. What what voice was that? <laughs> no, I have to cut it. Don't worry about you. Cut it out. No, no. <laughs> no. Table wine. The poem. <laughs> uh, so shoestring. I scare them off with poetry. They don't listen anymore. <laughs> shoestring and the ITV strike. Which is a very weird combination of things to cover. It is. Well, I, I'd done the ITV strike one, hadn't I? I think I think you wanted to cover shoestring, and you knew I'd watched it. So. <laughs> well, well, it's not the case of we need somebody to do it. Martin's Martin's already there, but it, it was a late commission. I seem to remember. It does. It does happen. We're, we're doing that a bit with Paul at the moment. That oh, could you just do that by next month? And <laughs> and, and somehow magically it happens. Mm. So. Well, actually, it's interesting. I find with an article sometimes uh, I, I kind of I'm I'm casting around trying to decide what to do next, and actually sometimes just saying, "Oh, can you do that?" really focuses the mind. So I, I I don't I don't think it's a bad idea at all. I mean, it's ironic. We've had ones that we've planned for like months on end, and then we've had things where we've gone on the morning. Oh, sod it, we'll do that. <laughs> so, so our planning process is is not necessarily as. It's sort of well worked out as you might think. 
Well, it doesn't have to be, does it? I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of what what we're doing. We're not, we're not we're not scheduling something, you know, for the Radio Times to write an article about. You know, it's it's if you if you decide at the last minute you'd like to do another podcast and you've got the time, you just do it. You know. And episode forty-one, the spooky special. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Although I wasn't that spooky, was I? I mean, well, some of the things were at a bit of a stretch. It must be said, but <laughs> and it, it again, it wasn't planned as a special. It just sort of there were enough things in it to call it a special. That's the beauty of having a lot of things, you know, available, isn't it? That's the that's the beauty of it. Uh, I I believe my contribution to that one was Quatermass and the Pit Part One. That's right. Uh, and I have the feeling that maybe. Quite a mass in the pits, but the quite a mass in the pit parts two, three, four, five, and six might sort of fill up half my year of articles if I'm not careful. Just keep churning them out. Well, I'm saying I I think of of the series I've covered, I think maybe that's possibly the one I'd like to do that with at some point. Uh, It it may they may not all come through in the next twenty minutes, but. uh, by by degrees, I think I might I might build that into a magnum opus. Then you can edit them all together into a special. No, uh- <laughs> <laughs> the cover for that one I quite like because it's it's the jigsaw effect. Because we kept on adding bits and pieces as we went along, didn't we? It was uh, I, w- I was having a, a bit of a traumatic time at the time, so it was actually quite useful to have. I, I mean, I, purely by coincidence, I'd, I'd sort of thought of that as an idea, but it was actually quite useful because I didn't have the time at that point to do the whole thing again. If you see what I mean? No, but it, but it is it is true of all, all these issues that some things we've got in the bank, some things we know we're going to do. And some things are just an act of desperation. So, so you sort of hammer the bits together sometimes, but most of the time it seems to work. So. Well, of course, the the other uh, thing uh, with, with, from from an, from an image point of view is sometimes it's getting high enough definition images. So sometimes you have to hide it by doing <coughs> strange and peculiar things with the artwork. Right, we won't do episode forty three because you've just oh, listened. You've, you've just heard it. You've just heard it. So make up your own mind. <laughs> But uh, yes, I, I should have got some, uh, what do you call it, some jingly bells to jingle, so you can put them on the soundtrack afterwards. Jingle, 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 jingle. Uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Yes. But we have got episode 42, which is our American one, sort of, except you did except you did Hancock's Half Hour, who was probably... Not not very American at all. I mean, Hancock would have loved to have broken into America, so I suppose it's it's kind of got that, that strange and peculiar link about it, but uh, no. Um... Again, yeah, I suppose it was just on the shelf, and you know. But but again, it 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 works actually better than you might think because we we've got sort of crime on that one, we've yes. got spying, we've got going to prison, so having something about a trial as well actually fitted. So you almost think it was planned. You it? almost would. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't, but we, we sort of went, oh, 12 Angry Men would fit. That'll do. Yeah, that'll do. That's, that's my approach. Well, I, I did I did feel, because I, I know somewhere, ooh, spoilers, I know somewhere that in, on, this, on the shelf there is an article about uh, Hill Street Blues, but I suspect um, Ed McBain might have had the podcast shot <laughs> from, from the grave. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, there's a quick run through uh, the last year of stuff and i think we've done all right 
it's it's a nice yeah. run it's a nice run of of stuff this year i, I think i think in i mean I, you know not not to blow one's own trunk because i know i'm look, we've only looked at it from the stuff i did myself but i think over the course of the year it, it's really started to i don't know whether it started to grow or build but it's certainly feeling like we know what we're doing well you know what you're doing i suspect is the more more because i'm just messing around and sending you stuff but but i think it's uh i think it's it's yeah, it's starting to come together. I just, I'm just hoping I can uh, pull, 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 pull myself together and do some more next year. <laughs> well, don't go anywhere. We do need you. Oh, I'm not planning on going anywhere. It's just, I, 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 well, like I say, uh, stuff in my head at the moment is is making some stuff difficult to do. But let's let's not yeah. dwell. But I just look at all these covers as a, as a you know if you if you put them all together, and I I think. We just have to thank you for everything you've done for us yes. this year. Yes, wonderful but, efforts, both in terms of writing, mm-hmm. reading out, reading it out, and actually giving us an air of professionalism on the on the on the graphic size side. Well, we try, we try. I mean, again, it's one of those things you kind of think there's only about two you could actually put on a calendar because all the rest are cop- copyright all over the place. But uh, they serve their purpose, and I, and I think I think. I hope that people uh, sort of recognise them for what they are. Yeah, and, and um, I, I I do enjoy just seeing your ideas sort of ping into the into the inbox when when you when you've come up with another one. And it, on on occasion, we we we've sort of come back to you, and because I I know for the episode forty two, uh. There, there was a draft version, and I said, "Can we change it to forty-second episode?" And that well, just I changed the font as well. You then. changed the font, yeah. And that that little bit of evolution of it, I, I think, I think really worked. So well, it's, it's nice that we're able process. to. I mean, it is part. I mean, that you know, it, it is the, the whole thing is a collaboration. This is what you know. I, I hope people get that that uh, around the archives experiment, for want of a better word, is uh, is is. Um, is a collaborative effort, and and, and I'm 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 really pleased with the team we've managed to build because we, we we ask people, and you don't know whether they they'll say yes or, or what. Um, but I don't think we've really had a failure in terms of introducing no. sort of somebody new no, this year at all. Not at all. And everybody's done something in their own style of course they have but it all meshes mm-hmm. and i think we've we've managed to get people that that know what they're doing mm-hmm. and that's that's the hardest thing from my point of view sometimes i do hope so i mean i know uh, from a technical point of view for example my stuff isn't as technically uh, polished but I, I like i think the words hold up and i and i i'm never sure the performance does but i think the words hold up and um you know, <laughs> uh, I, I try my best, but equally, you know, then then you know, I don't, I, I I didn't have the knowledge, I don't have the knowledge to try and try and sort of start stitching the uh, soundtracks in and stuff. But um, we're getting there. We're trying stuff out. Um, the other thing is, of course, we did finally. Uh, I, I found the time <laughs> again uh, for various reasons to do the back catalogue of covers. Back to the beginning, which meant that you were able to this year put out all the old episodes as uh, another chance to hear, as it were. You know. That helped as well, actually. That did that did boost the numbers up a bit. So yeah, it's surprising what a little bit of publicity does sometimes in the right places. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, you were on. Well, uh, 
in the pod was it pod bible pod bible wasn't it we managed to get into pod bible somehow mm. yes yeah amazing <laughs> i don't know how much good that did but we have got the issue and mm. it's nice it's nice just to have a little memento <laughs> Mm-hmm. That oh we were we in were there. there yeah there we were <laughs> page thirty whatever it is but we're there and when we do a hundred episode one hundred and fifty seven <laughs> well you do realise that the um the production code system I've got um goes up all the way to episode nine 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 which we will <laughs> never reach <laughs> I tell you your your um your podcast SoundCloud links are playing havoc with my uh, my hard copies. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking, oh, he's got a pattern now. Oh, he's changed it again. Oh, he's fine. <laughs> well, now I've gone back and renumbered all all the original ones, so they do run from RTA one onwards now. No, it was it was putting the links in the uh, the uh, blog, and oh, right. you, you've started changing the last bit <laughs> of of the epi- of the blog blog link. Sorry, the the link for the SoundCloud has, has now got. Oh like the spooky special on the end or whatever and it's like oh, oh yeah that's that's not what's in me what in me typing but never mind we sort it out we get there eventually so i know someone has to someone i mean that's i don't i never know whether anyone actually reads the articles at all but but the point is that if they click on it and it doesn't work they'll tell me so you know oh we've gone all northern for a second there we noticed it's that last <laughs> summer wine set i got yesterday <laughs> And that's the other thing I've got to point out to you is that, that you saying that it, it persuades people to buy stuff. I've spent a fortune this year on stuff that you... We, we are going to have to work out a system with network and BBC video, aren't we? About... Yeah, get yeah, a cut. Can, can we get 5% commission on sales or something? <laughs> or, or just a disc swap. You can post me something if you want me to watch it. <laughs> There are ways around these things, of course. But but thank you, thank you, Martin, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what you've got up your sleeve next year. Bye bye.